Welcome to Sacred Realms. It's a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. I'm your host, Lyndon Willoughby. Yeah, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Matt Willoughby. Hey, Matt, we have a wedding this weekend. Everything's crazy. Weddings! Woo! Nuptials! Of course, the wedding's going to be over by the time people are listening to this episode. Yeah, toit nopes. Uh, which, you watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine, right? I do. Yeah, I love Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It's nine great. Nine-Nine! Nine-Nine! Yeah, it's great. Um, no, uh, it's going to be great. Uh, it's raining today, which is not great two days before an outdoor wedding. So it's an outdoor wedding. We're all wearing white shoes. <laughs> it's going to be fine. You know, everything's going to be great. We're just rolling with it. It's 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 going to be good. I'm going to wear waiters. You should definitely wear waiters. <laughs> you're you're not a groomsman, so you can wear whatever you want. Yeah, Linda and yeah. I have a uniform that we have to <laughs> adhere to. So I, mean, I get the best part. I have to go to the rehearsal dinner. I get to go to the bachelor party, and I have yeah. to do none of the other things. Yeah, <laughs> no, like it's, it's 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 fantastic. Mike, welcome back onto the show, everyone. It's Mike the detective. Woo! Mike. <laughs> he whose daughter is in the wedding party, and so yeah, you get to go to the nice dinner. <laughs> Congratulations! I knew I had her for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> so you you had a whole child. Just so you could go to a rehearsal dinner at a steakhouse. It's worth the sleepless nights in the mill to raise her just for that. <laughs> <laughs> I think your uh, your at least financial cost benefit analysis there is way off. No one said I was smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the sunk cost fallacy definitely applies to children. It's like, well, I'm in this much so far, or so I might, might as well, as well just, just keep, keep going. going. Yeah. <laughs> is what it is. <laughs> Mike, we are so happy to have you back on the show. It's been a while. It has been a while, and I'm glad that I was able to catch up for this fine episode. Yeah, it's it's been kind of a challenge. I mean, uh, Matt and I, obviously, we've talked on on the season up until this point about how Twilight Princess has been kind of a more difficult game for us to keep up with week to week, just because, especially in that early third, early 50%, whatever, um, it was a lot and it was really chonky. And for you who, you know, like obviously you've got two kids, you've got a whole lot of life responsibilities. Um, life is busy, you know? Um, I know that it was legitimately challenging for you to get caught up to this point. Oh, yeah. So you you did get me the game, for which I am very grateful, and the Wii U gamepad. But I got it like, what, two weeks after y'all started playing the game. So I missed the first episode that we were planning on me being on. Um, and then I stayed up till one o'clock in the morning last night, finally getting there. Um, I was about three hours behind um, because my wife has needs, Lyndon. And they are foot rubs and binge watching The House of Usher. Dude, that show was so good. It was good. Oh my gosh, it was good. Yes. And so when your wife tells you to eat the Halloween candy with her and watch House of Usher, you don't not do that. Also, and then all of a sudden you look true. and it's 11 o'clock and you really don't have the gumption for some Zelda. Yeah, nope, totally understood. And you know, it's actually tough because my my usual way of doing this is that after my wife goes to sleep, and she's usually a fall asleep around 1030 kind of person. Um, 
I would sit in bed and I would play whatever Zelda we're doing at the moment, assuming that it's on a handheld console, which the only one that this didn't work for was was Wind Waker. But um, and, you know, that in that way, it was a lot easier for me to keep track of pod. Um, however, a few things have happened. One, my wife's fall asleep time has kind of shifted back about 15 or 20 minutes. So now we're right about 11 o'clock and my uh, fall asleep time has started creeping f- more and more forward. Um, I used to be like a fall asleep at midnight, 1230 sort of guy. And the last few months, I don't know what it is. Like I get to 1115, man, and I'm just, I'm dunsky most nights. Uh, and yeah, I think that is just what they call getting old. Um, can't hang like I used to. I'm not a young man anymore. I am in a similar boat, um, as was found out after the last bachelor party. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's terrible when you don't even drink that much and then you still feel like that in the morning. And I, I now feel worse for all the people that have also aged. <laughs> it's, it's one of the cruelest things that can happen to anybody. But uh, regardless, we're happy that you managed to get caught up with us up to this point. We appreciate you putting in the effort to do it because it's going to be a great conversation. And we love having Detective Mike on the show. It wouldn't be a season of Sacred Realms without you. <laughs> well, I'm happy to be here for the pod. Well, and besides, you have to uh, vote with us, so that's a necessity. Lyndon also subtly implied that if I didn't keep up with the pot, he was going to send loan sharks after me, and so... Wait, Lyndon, do we have loan sharks on the payroll? I don't have that expense line on my budget sheet. I didn't know when was a good time to bring this up. I think maybe we should table this and get back to it offline. We need to have a we need to have a sacred realms business meeting so we can go over the budget line by line because if you're hiding loan sharks from me, what else are you yeah, hiding? Yeah, except from then me? there's a paper trail. Like we're talking about it now, you know? No, we have there will be no other paper trail. It's, it's we just need to <laughs> have a discussion. Except for this discussion that we're putting out onto the it's internet. It's purely hypothetical. So Lyndon and Matt made a demon deal just to have a podcast be successful for <laughs> several <laughs> yeah. seasons. Yeah. It's uh Lyndon, this is all purely hypothetical. It's like it's like all those rappers who rap about smoking weed. They can't get arrested for it because it's art. It's hypothetical. Okay, that is how the law works. Actually, hey, detective, can you give us a double check on that? That's how the law works, right? Uh, sure. <laughs> Have you ever arrested a rapper and then sentenced them for smoking weed because they sang about it in one of their songs? That's oddly specific and no. <laughs> See? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the point stands. I feel like I feel like his point, while shaky in its foundation, did land. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I wouldn't say that I have met a lot of rappers to which I could arrest for said violation <laughs> yeah so, well this is we're, we're talking very specifically at this point in time right yeah now, i don't know so. that that's our social circle guys um <laughs> anyway well this was a huge digression <laughs> yeah maybe we should uh move along somewhere else I'm yeah trying to keep up with the three hour max nichols episode oh man maybe we should <laughs> that's not our benchmark <laughs> hey who's ready for another quick digression sure it's gonna be a very quick one because there's honestly not that much to talk about at this point but y'all there's a pretty big piece of news that dropped this week Oh yeah, that one. I mean, it was it was it was news. Yeah. No big deal, yeah, right? It's, it's fine. Just a Zelda movie, ladies and gentlemen, officially announced by Nintendo, confirmed at all major outlets. A live-action Legend of Zelda movie is currently in production uh, with Shigeru Miyamoto. Um, I'm sure that the colossal success of the Mario movie earlier this year had nothing to do with that decision whatsoever. Um, the key word here, again, is live-action, which I think was a big shock to pretty much everyone. I don't know that anyone really had that on their bingo card. Um, so, going to be very interesting to see where this ends up you know like i say we can't really talk too much about it right now because 
other than everyone in their mom's fan casting, uh, we don't know anything else about this. Well, we do know it's either going to be Henry Cavill or Chris Pratt as Link. <laughs> it's got to be. It's got to be between those two. I'll take my boy Henry any day of the week. Yeah, I was gonna say, and I think Henry's looking for work right now. He got screwed over in that whole. Girl no, he's, he's doing a new Highlander debacle. movie. Oh, is he? Yeah, he's he's officially slated for a new Highlander movie. He's gonna land on his feet. Oh, for sure. And he's also working on pre-production for a Warhammer uh, series. Look, there are a few people in my life who I do worry about. Henry Cavill is not one of them. I don't worry about him. He's going to be fine. Yeah. He's so handsome. R- regardless. Isn't so he, though? He's so I'm handsome, so dude. handsome. I think he looks great. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm a very Henry, straight. you're listening, we love you. <laughs> yeah, I'm a very straight man. And you look great. Man, Henry Cavill is so handsome. I'm a somewhat straight man, and yeah. <laughs> oh, man. He's good looking. <laughs> All right, I don't want to talk too much about the Zelda movie because odds are we're going to have an actual piece of bonus content at some point in the future where we talk about this a little bit more now that we actually know some official things about it, and including the fact that it exists. Um, but just for right now, I mean, Matt, how did this announcement strike you? Just quickly. I really don't have any emotion tied to it at this point in time. We don't know how far away it is. We know nothing else about it other than the director uh, who doesn't have a strong suite of directorial credits behind him. Uh, the movie list that he has directed, none of them I like. So, you know, not great. Shigeru Miyamoto being involved is obviously good. Um, but yeah, like there's just not enough information for me to be on a hype train or like anything. Like once we start seeing casting announcements and story announcements and like once we start seeing more information, timelines, like those are the things that like as in timeline of how when the movie is coming out, not what timeline it takes place in. That can be very confusing. Anyway, like I just need more before I get any emotional investment whatsoever. I'm hype. I'm glad you're hype. I, I look, I, everyone, if you want to be hype, be hype. I have been burned personally so many times by hype trains that I just like don't get on them anymore. Yeah, so. it's fun to get excited about stuff. But yes, it's probably a ways out. But I feel like we just kind of have to trust Nintendo. And they, I mean, short track working on the movie so far, but Mario movie was pretty fantastic. So if they can channel that energy and maybe get uh, Jack Black back as Ganondorf, then I think we'll be set. (laughs) (laughs) Including a musical number. Yeah. I would love Jack Black needs to be in it. And with the Triforce, we're gonna rule. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't think you'd ever have a reason to bring that back to the podcast, but I'm I'm glad glad we did again. I can put anything to that tune. (laughs) No, it's great. Uh, Jack Black needs to play a role uh, of any kind. Just something fun. He's gonna be Tingle. I mean, I would actually one thousand if Tingle is in this movie and it's not Jack Black, we riot. Jack Jack Black is going to play Giovanni because we can't get Ron Jeremy, and we wouldn't even if we could. Uh, I mean, fair, but also I really just like him though. Okay, last thing, really last thing. I hope we don't do it on an existing game. Like, I hope they don't try to adapt a game to the movie. Like, I hope it's something new. I feel like Ocarina of Time is just a really safe bet, but I don't know. We'll see. I, dude, time travel is hard in movies. Are you kidding? Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Look, I'm kind of, I, I have a moderate amount of hype, and it's more just coming from the fact that this thing is happening at all. Uh, like, it was, it was impossible to imagine for the longest time that this was ever something that would even come to pass. So for that reason, I am excited. Um, And I also liked the Mario movie. And I do feel that Nintendo has a good feel for the sort of quality control that is needed to keep 
projects like this feeling on brand for their stuff these days. Uh, certainly that did not used to be the case, but uh, I think the Mario movie showed that they are going to be pretty protective uh, with making sure that these movies are true to the feel of the games that they're inspired on for the most part. So I think that there are some reasons to be cautiously optimistic, but yeah, it's it's tough to say anything more about it until we know more. But um, if any more updates come out, we will, of course, be keeping everyone up to date on them. So before we get into housekeeping and the Sacred Realms rundown and everything, Mike, you are... Uh, finding yourself now in the position of having to answer some questions because this is your first appearance uh, on this season of pod. And we're going to do the thing we do every time somebody appears for the first time on a season of pod, which is catch up with them on their history with the game that we're playing. And we're also going to have a quick conversation about your experience with Twilight Princess so far, uh, because there's a lot of game in your rear view on this playthrough. So uh, let's go ahead and start with uh, your personal history with Twilight Princess, and maybe just tell us kind of where where you hold it in your own personal loosey-goosey ranking of Zelda games up until this point. My, my ranking is pretty loosey-goosey. Um, so history, yes, I have played this game. This was one that I was excited for whenever it was announced. Uh, it comes out, we're in college. Um, it was not a high contender for my time whenever it first dropped, and so if I remember correctly, because it has been... So this game came out in 2006. It would have been uh, two years before he went to college. And it also came out at the exact same time as the Wii. Um, and so if you didn't have a GameCube or a Wii in your house, then I think you, you probably would have missed it at the time, which is the same reason that Matt and I missed it when it first came out. Okay, so I did have a GameCube. I just did not get this game, oh. um, which I'm kind of not sure why that was a a failing on my part because I would have probably played it at that point, but I did not play it until college and I borrowed your Wii and played that probably in the course of about a week <laughs> during a between biology test phase. As people do with video games in college. Yeah, where you, where you have your like physics test, your chemistry test and your bio test and you know, hey man, I've got a straight week of where I can just sit in my boxers, drink a jug of wine and play video games. And uh, which ha happened frequently. But I, I remember this game fondly. I don't remember a lot about it. Uh, well, I didn't remember a lot about whenever I started. I remember that you changed into the wolf. Um, I remember that there was a large cast of characters. I couldn't tell you about the end. I knew that something happened with Zant not being the main big bad, but I couldn't have told you what happened other than somehow Ganondorf returns. Um, and so I didn't have a lot going into it, and I was excited to to have it be fresh after 10-plus years. Um, so playing the game so far, I have been fairly pleased. Um, I know that you and Matt and some of your guests have touched on how the playing for the pod is kind of hard on this game, because, man, those first sections are so chunky. Um, trying to keep up with the cast, I found myself lagging behind, um, because I just didn't have time to play the weekly segment. They were so big. Um, how far detailed do you want me to go as far as my... I'd, I'd say we got about 15 to 20 minutes that we can spend having this convo. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I'll just keep rambling then. Um, so, no, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I liked, especially that you got Epona so early in this game. Um, that's pretty unique as far as my recollection of the games, is having your horse companion right off the bat. Um, 
and not having to like earn them through a trial or going to a ranch. And so that was pretty fun mixed with the clunkiness of how the horse works in some pretty tight spaces. Mm. I feel like early game, you're going through a lot of pretty narrow pathways and I'm just like running into a wall, like, sorry, girl, just bear with me. Um, so that was fun. Um, I liked the, the setup with the, the springs and the spirit guardians. Um, I thought the first couple sections were really fun. I loved the world building. Um, even though it was chunky, I liked the the main cast of core characters it was bringing in, all their expressiveness. Um, I have found that that does peter out um, kind of after you finished the core group from um, Ordon Village. Mm. A lot of the characters just kind of seem to start falling flat. Um, I know that you all have touched on that the a white lotus. <laughs> That's the best uh, analogy I can think of for him too. But they get introduced and they seem so cool and so like influential. Like here's this group of people who's working behind the scenes and going to help Link. And I was really kind of what you were thinking where I'm going to go to an area. They're going to kind of be my companion or maybe help me out with a few things. No, they kind of come. Hey, yeah, here's where you should be. Bye, Link. Go back to the bar. Um, so that was a little kind of disappointing. Um, I have thought that this game was really strong in its cast of core characters, early half. I really like the slew of mini games uh, in this this game. I really didn't realize how much was in it, but you have several games, um, shooting games, the cannon game, you have the fishing mini games, the boat mini game, you've got the circus tent one. Oh, yeah. And so that's part of what slowed me down early game is that I felt like I needed to do all these and I didn't know how you got the bottles or the bomb bags. So I'd spend 30 or 40 minutes perfecting a game only to find out that I got pretty much jack for it, which was a little disappointing. Um, I think now I'm at like the first full row of hearts plus three or four. So I'm not hurting for hearts. I really don't care about heart pieces anymore. I'm not playing on hero mode. Mm. So I have only died twice. And it was all on that friggin' uh, Bospo Coblin, the first one you fight with the joust. Oh, yeah. I could not, for the life of me, get that dodge and whack down. Can I ask you, were you playing that on the gamepad, like on the gamepad screen? I have played solely on the gamepad screen. Okay, so that was the way that I played this game last time, and um, I think in the episode where we were talking about the Boss Bokoblin Joust, I mentioned that the, you know, uh, in my in my past playthroughs, I recall that being very, very difficult and frustrating um, because of those timing issues. And this time it wasn't as big a deal for me. And I really do wonder if that's just down to the fact that the gamepad is going to have a few milliseconds of latency because it's connecting back to the base console. And so it might just not feel as responsive as it needs to. Um, I, I think that that really might just be it because playing on my Steam Deck this time, I didn't have those same problems. But I, I clearly remember last time I played the game on the gamepad screen, that section was a nightmare. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I would uh, juke Epona, but he would hit me almost every time. And then friggin' whenever I did get Epona out of the path of him, I would swing and Link's friggin' dumb sword would be on the other side of the body from where the Bospo Coblin was. And so I ended up having, I think Matt might've done this, where I did the charge attack where you hold the sword back. And I knew that if I went on that specific side, I could swing it. And that's how I ended up getting him. 
Um, so there was that. I've had a couple frustrating things with uh, some backpedaling, um, having to go back over the same areas. Sometimes they did things to make it feel fresh. A lot of times it just felt like filler to me. I feel like this game is a lot of filler. Um, the big areas that go to make it look big, but then whenever you're driving through, or not driving, riding through them or walking through them, it's just empty space to slow you down, in my opinion. Um, I really do like, once you get out of the mandatory wolf forms, I switch back and forth between Wolf Link and Human Link a lot. Um, I did that constantly throughout the Snow Peak Temple. Um, I do it in combat a lot if there's a big group of adds because um, you can do that big charge field attack with Wolf Link. That's really awesome for taking down a big group. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the uh, the Elden Region little village in Kiriko. Feels like a wild west town with only three denizens. Who, <laughs> where are all the people? <laughs> so here, I'll pose this to you. Do you think that it was very populated or is it like a poor way stop where people just traveling shack up at that hotel? Because there's not that many homes. There's just a couple. Uh, I get the impression that Kakariko Village used to be far more populous than it currently is. And I guess my headcanon here is that a lot of those people have moved to Hyrule Castle Town or wherever. Um, and now it is just kind of a kind of a ghost town sort of, you know, on its on its last dying breaths, really. I mean, so that, that's one way to look at it. I don't really know why it justifies a shaman and town leader for <laughs> for three people. But also, if you look at their graveyard, there's only what, like seven or eight graves. So how old is this place? I mean, you figure there would be more if it had been a longstanding city. That's just me kind of digressing though. But, um, so I liked that. Um, I did have a very frustrating run at my first Howling Stone. Mm. I could not get it. I felt like I was right on. I spent 45 minutes doing that and I almost snapped your dang gamepad in half. I didn't do that. And then finally, I did something not different at all. I mean, that game worked. that gamepad is pretty cheap feeling, so I feel like you probably could have done it. Yeah, I would have felt like a badass too. Um, so anyway, most part, I would say I really like the gamepad. Um, I like the aiming, the hook shot, and the bow with the gamepad. Um, but back to more my mo- more overalls, I've liked the game. As far as where I place it in my pack before playing it, I would have said that it was probably near the bottom of my 3D experiences. Um, I have found things to like more about it this time, or at least maybe they're fresher. Um, There are some frustrating things, though. Um, So overall, I'm enjoying it. It has not felt like a slog to play the game just to keep up with the pace. Yeah, and obviously one of the big points that we've been having is that the dungeons continue to be pretty routinely excellent. Has that been your opinion as well? Yes. I I can't think of any specific dungeon where I was just like, oh, that was hot garbage. Um, For the most part, they've been what I would say is higher side of mediocre to really pretty good. Cool. Yeah. Um, And, uh, you know, I know we were talking about this before we went on uh, before we went live, but we were having the Arbiter's Grounds v. Snow Peak conversation. Where do you land on that? Uh, I would say that I'm in the camp of Arbiter's Grounds being the superior temple. Um, I do agree with what y'all said on last week's episode that the ball and chain is the superior item faux show. Um, I thought the spinner was kind of goofy. I'd like what it does. I just don't feel like the execution was as cool as they could have made it. Um, But overall, that dungeon was fire. And I really liked the Stallard fight. Uh, It felt felt like something out of like a D&D campaign. And it was pretty awesome. 
Yep, 100%. Uh, thanks for catching us up on all of those thoughts, Mike. Obviously, we're going to get a little bit more nitty-gritty into some specific stuff from this week. Before we do that, Matt, we got to do Whiskey Bit. Whiskey Bit. What are we drinking tonight, Matt? Uh, so anyone who listened to our bonus episode that went live actually today uh, will recognize this one. Today, today being Thursday. Yes, Thursday the 9th. Um, we are drinking the Chattanooga straight bourbon whiskey 111 proof uh yet again and uh it's delicious uh it's super good so uh chattanooga is a uh it's a newer to us bourbon um i don't know how new they are in general uh but we haven't drank a lot of chattanooga this uh this straight bourbon is you know primarily yellow corn malted rye uh a lot of rye so it's got to be rye at least 50%, 51% rye in order to be a bourbon. Um, it is uh, heavy notes of malted barley, caramel, honey, uh, etc. So very good. Uh, aged for just over two years. Um, high proof, quite tasty and delicious. Absolutely. Well, gents, let's go ahead and have us a clinky clink of glasses to toast this episode. Cheers, gents. Whiskey bit. Yay. Whiskey, Whiskey bit. bit. I'm glad you all do the whiskey bit just because it allows me to drink good whiskeys. <laughs> well, yeah, that's fair. You're you're getting the benefit of the whiskey bit. Congratulations. Thank you. And also, we begrudge you this not at all. <laughs> I don't know. I think I think maybe uh, maybe Mike should uh, bring something for whiskey bit to the rank and review episode at the end of the season. Yeah, I got some Jack Daniels. Uh, okay, maybe <laughs> maybe not Jack Daniels. Maybe we'll get something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. Let's get into some. Actually, housekeeping. you could bring the Jack da- Jack Daniel single barrel. That is amazing. Well, even the Jack Bonded. That's like a that's Jack like Bonded a, is so good. That's like a twenty eight dollar whiskey. It's like twenty five, twenty eight dollars. Delicious. Where you get it, and it is amazing. That is pretty good. That and then the uh, the Maker's Mark um, forty six. Yeah, that's been my go to uh, as well. It's super good. Yeah, Maker's forty six is excellent. There's really just a lot of very good whiskey that you can get for less than thirty dollars. Well, now that Bourbon it. Bubble is kind of popping because now the market is saturated like originally everything was so expensive because there was such a high demand and uh no supply well now the market is really saturated with good bourbon so prices are dropping again which is awesome oh no i know darn no yeah Yeah, i think people are saying that maybe the uh maybe the artificially inflated uh vodka market is coming back (laughs) and to those people i say you can keep it i'm gonna drink my 30 dollar bourbon yeah keep your vodka i don't want it any of it none of it none of it All right, y'all, let's get into the housekeeping and then dive into today's episode. If you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly re-examination of The Legend of Zelda, one little slice at a time. Sacred Realms drops every Wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks. Every week, we play a new section of a Zelda game. Then we sit down here to talk and to drop our hot takes. If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, be sure to leave us a review. I think we have a really good five-star review to let off the chain tonight, don't we, Matt? Yeah. Yeah. Five-star reviews are greatly appreciated, and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod to get access to our Discord channel, listener mail, bonus episodes, vote on what game we play next, and much more. Um, As we mentioned earlier, we do have a brand new bonus episode that is up as of today. Um, It's exclusive to Master Sword and Big Goran Sword patrons for the first month, and then after that it goes uh, live for the entire Patreon community. Um, This one is covering the second batch of Zelda animated series episodes. Um, The first episode in that series is now available for everybody. So if you're a patron of any level, go check that out. If you want to hear more of our bonus content, that is where you can get it. Matt, let's go ahead and let that five-star review off the chain. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is from Ab- Abulet. I think this might be supposed to be absolute, but it's Abulet. Uh, title is Passionate, Smart, and Funny. I love this podcast so much. The hosts and guests are well-informed, have really interesting and well-thought-out takes on various topics, and are true fans of the series. They're also pretty funny. I'm listening through the Tears of the Kingdom episodes right now, and there have been many times where they absolutely nail it as to why this game is so amazing. I share the same enthusiasm towards the Legend of Zelda series, and I'm so happy to have found this podcast. Well, thank you, Abulet, and thank you for the five-star review. We truly appreciate it. It helps us a lot with the algorithm on Apple Podcasts, pushes us closer to the top so more people hear the show and uh, can possibly join the community and enjoy the things that all of you wonderful listeners are enjoying right now. You always want the algorithm on your side. All right, one of the additional benefits that Master Sword patrons and above get is that we read their names every week here on the show. Those legendary individuals are Nick Tendo, Adam, Sakura Sky, Art, Jeremy, Derek, Cosmic Link, Dante2, Tom, Andy, Stephanie, Billy, Connor, Rachel, Shepherd Street, Matthew, Chris, Daniel, Fallout907, Kelso, Chris, Tiffany the Star, Daxel, Patrice, Stephanie, Il Maestro himself, Dark Nuck. Brian, George, Mike, Dylan, Lennon, Melanie, Kolku, Aiden, Rowan, Josh, Nick, Dante, One, Gep, Brittany, Davey, Haru the Mighty, Derek, Albert, Mark, Andy, Cameron, Ben, Daniel, Nick D underscore TV, Travis, Hyrule Interviews, a.k.a. Max Nichols, Garrett, and Drew. These are the most legendary of individuals, and I would accompany any of them on a cross-time jaunt into an ancient temple any day of the week. Yes, time travel. Yes, absolutely, 100%. Yeah, I, I don't know that I'd want to take that many people back then because you have the bitter butterfly effect. Well, if you're just in the one temple, which is not inhabited by any sentient beings, I think your yeah. butterfly effect would probably be pretty. Yeah, no, you're probably right. Yeah, yeah I'd go with fair. them. Yeah. Hey, Lennon, do you ever just run through that list of names in your sleep? I don't, but if I if somebody served me up the first two or three, then I would probably be able to just go. Uh, it's, it's honestly down a little bit to muscle memory at this point. We did have like one or two people from the early days who were not on that list anymore. And that would probably like throw me off somewhere (laughs) towards the back two thirds. But anyway, uh, yes. And you know what? It's a nice long list and I appreciate all those people so much. So yeah, I do have their names committed just a little bit to memory. A lot of them are talking to us weekly on the discord, which is a ton of fun. And, uh, again, another benefit of being in the Patreon, that discord community is a blast. But without further ado, let's get into the Sacred Realms Rundown, which is a six-part analysis of what you played this week and the feelings that it made us feel. Part one of the Sacred Realms Rundown is, as always, the plot recap. This week, read by Matt. Take it away, Matt. All right, hold on. I need to resituate my mic. This is for myself. Oh, he's actually got the plot recap ready? Yeah! Yeah, I'm so proud of you. I did it! (laughs) High five. Woo! Woo! We teleport back to Hyrule Castletown to check back in with our group of compatriots at Telma's Bar, hoping that they will have the next clue to our quest. On our way there, we get a letter from Yetta, thanking us for the help and lamenting her inability to spend much time with us while we were in her home. She invites us back up to the mountain anytime for some friendly snowboarding with her and Yetto, and we're gratified by her speedy recovery and her generous offer of friendship. We don't have time for snowboarding right now, so we head into Castletown, making a quick stop by by Giovanni's house to see if the 20 Poes that we've gotten rid of have freed him from his curse. Giovanni is able to move around once more, but is still entirely encased in gold and rupees, so he asks us to track down all 60 Poes in Hyrule to reclaim his soul entirely. 
On the other hand, his cat Gengal is back to normal and very grateful for his freedom. So we make our way to the south end of town and back into the shady alley where Telma's bar is sequestered and enter the now familiar dive bar. We find that Russell has taken leave of the group in the back room, and Telma tells us that he has gone back to the southern forest to search for an ancient power in a forgotten grove. We check in with the rest of the group and get the map marker before heading off to Farron Woods once more. The woods where we started our journey, now free of twilight, still feel like home when we land back in the clearing near the forest temple. While we have changed significantly since our last time in the area when we claimed the Master Sword and were freed from our entrapment in wolf form, the woods are the same as they have been for ages. Russell is standing by himself near the ledge that leads to the Lost Woods and the Sacred Grove beyond, so we join him to discuss what he's found. He doesn't tell us anything that we don't already know, but does offer us a way to reach the clearing in human form. He uses some nearby hawk grass to call a feathered friend, but not the trusty raptor that we expect. Instead of the hawk, a glowing golden cucko flies up and lands at our feet. Our expression of confusion must have given something away because Russell assures us that this fellow flies like a dream and is guaranteed to get us across with ease. Since we can't just transform into a wolf while our old mentor and friend is standing right here, we take his word for it and grab the sparkling chicken before leaping off the edge and over the abyss. True to Russell's word, the little guy flies like he was born for it and carries us safely across the void and up to the entrance of the Lost Woods. We enter the Lost Woods once more, for the first time on our own two feet, and are immediately face to face with the forest imp from our last visit. He seems ready for another round of hide-and-seek, and summons his marionettes before running off into the woods. He is a little bit more crafty than last time, and we have to follow the faint glow of his lantern to find him among the twisting paths of the darkened forest. But, as before, we prevail in the game of hide-and-seek and follow the Skull Kid into his inner sanctum. We repeat the last bit of his game, just as before, with having to strike him as he is summoning more puppets. But in short order, we have bested the miscreant, and in gratitude for our participation in the game, he allows us access to the Sacred Grove once again. This time we enter from a higher vantage point, where we can look down on the statues that guard the entrance to the Master Sword's pedestal. We move a large stone block to allow easy access to this overlook, just in case, and jump down into the atrium. As soon as we step foot on the sigil of the Triforce, we are surrounded once more by a twilight fence and accosted by a handful of shadow beasts. We make short work of them with the Master Sword, and now we have a handy portal in the area if we need to visit here again. But the way forward seems blocked for now, and we can't find any hint of a mirror shard or our path forward. We walk back into the clearing where we claimed the Master Sword, and on a whim we decide to place the blade back in its pedestal, just to see if the area reacts at all. To our surprise, the immediate area is unaffected, but a stone gateway opens up on the overlook that we dropped down from. We head back and pass through it, and as we do, the most curious sensation we have ever felt passes over us. It feels like going through Midna's teleportation, but as if we did it backwards and sideways at the same time, and we feel as if the entire world has shifted in the few steps that we have taken forward. As we regain our bearings, we notice that we, no long we are no longer in the sacred grove with the ruins of the long-forgotten temple. 
Instead, we stand in a grandiose stone structure with polished marble floors, huge stained glass windows with light streaming through them onto the floor in beautiful patterns. The sigil of the Triforce is below us, right where it was in the sacred grove, but instead of being on cracked and dirty stone, it is resplendent in gold filigree and green marble borders. We have no other choice but to acknowledge that we have traveled through time into the temple when it was in its glory, and glorious it most certainly is. We pass through into the chamber of the sword to see eight massive stained glass windows surrounding a raised marble dais with the pedestal of the sword in the middle. We make our way somberly to the sword's pedestal and once more place the sword within it. As we do, a bright blue flash of light materializes in the form of a staircase leading up to the windowsill in front of us. We remove the master sword and step towards the staircase, only to be stopped dead in our tracks as Oko and her son sprint past us and up the stairs. Right as they are about to collide with the window, it disappears into nothingness, revealing an archway leading to an unknown area beyond, and they both won't run right through it. Slightly flabbergasted, we follow these strange folks up the stairs and through the arch, deeper into the Temple of Time. Assuming we have traveled back in time, we are taken aback by the wealth and grandeur of the ancient Hylians that is on display in the temple. The bas-reliefs on every wall are in astonishing detail. Every surface is marble or dark gray stone of high quality and cut, and all the accents around are pure gold. In the center of the room before us is a large golden bell, inscribed with the repeating patterns of a medallion-like symbol of three triangles pointing inwards, interlaced with three circles. This sigil is inscribed in numerous places around the room, along with the sigil of the Hylian royal family over the doors at either end. We step into the large room and look for a way forward, but the door at the opposite end is locked tight. Midna notices that the guardian statue on one side of the door is missing its partner, and she thinks that we will need to find the wayward statue and replace it in order for the door to open. We set off to explore this temple of time and soon find Oko and her son at the base of the next stairs. She tells us that this is the place she has been trying to reach for so long and has instead been getting trapped in the other dungeons we've met her in along the way. She claims that the ancient technology of our people sleeps in this place and that once she finally finds it, she and her son can go home at last. She pleads with us to take them both with us as we explore, and we agree, glad to have them along once more. With our passengers safely stowed, we head into the temple and begin our exploration. The next room introduces us to some of the nasty denizens that we will be facing along the way. Some run-of-the-mill keys give us no trouble, but a large hairy spider also patrols the area, and takes some stabs to its one large eyeball to put it out of commission. The temple seems to operate heavily based on weighted switches, which only open gates for certain periods of time while they're being held down by our body weight. We use some handy pots or statues that we find in the rooms to keep the switches depressed to allow passage further in. As we continue on, we find more enemies. A lot of them are various life stages of the large spider we squished in the second room, and we honestly consider just setting fire to the entire place and calling it a day when we see a swarm of at least 50 spiderlings milling about in one of the large chambers. 
There are also some Lizalfos to contend with, and they even brought in the heavily armored boys to tango. But even the full plate armor can't stand up to the sword skills that we've learned from our spectral master on our journey. And we continue making our way through the temple. As we continue our exploration, killing lots of spiders, Lizalfos, and living statues called Armos along the way, we find ourselves in a room with large golden scales that seem to prevent passage further on into the dungeon. When we set foot on one of the plates, the other raises, blocking us from proceeding into the next room. We use some of the small decorative statues in the room to offset our weight and make our way further in. The temple continues to try to block our passage by putting up puzzles in the form of sliding stone walls that will move to allow slow progress across a room, and sometimes into false progress that is blocked by a gate of electricity. All in all, the temple proves to be a huge test of our abilities, both in combat and in wits. Eventually, we find ourselves at the very top of the temple in a large, ornately domed circular room. This room is incredibly dim, with only one window at the opposite end of the entryway, and in the middle is a, nar- is a large knight clad in black heavy plate armor. Under the window on the opposite side is the statue that we've been looking for, but it appears that we will have to go through that knight to get to it. He doesn't seem to notice us until we step into the inner circle of the stones on the ornate floor, and then he finally turns to face us. He wields a massive cleaving sword in one hand and a stout metal shield in the other. These armaments, combined with his imposing size and heavy plate armor, telegraph that we are in for one heck of a fight, and the Dark Nut wastes no time in getting into that fight. We have to use all our arsenal of sword arts in order to even scratch the surface of this foe. It uses its shield to great effect, blocking most of our attacks, even the backslice more often than not. We mostly had to play a game of patience and avoid the massive swings of our foe in order to get in under his guard for a few quick jabs. We eventually get a solid hit with the helm splitter maneuver, and the armor of the Dark Nut falls to the ground. Far from being defeated, our enemy throws his massive sword at us and draws his smaller longsword as he casts aside his shield and dives back in for more combat. His scale under armor is still extremely protective, and his skill with the blade is just as impressive as his skill with the sword and shield combo. We have to continue to throw everything we have at him, and through a furious combination of back slices, helm splitters, and well-timed dodges, we are able to get past his guard enough times to finally bring him down. As our foe falls, we turn our attention to the massive statue, and wonder how in the world we're supposed to get it from the very top of this tower back to the main entrance. We put it aside for now and open the chest that the Darknet was guarding. Inside, we find something called the Dominion Rod, and Oko tells us that this is the technology of her people that she was looking for. The Dominion Rod allows us to take control of ancient statues and move them as if they were alive. So we use the Dominion Rod to take control of the statue above us, and as soon as we do, the large bell at the entrance of the chamber lights up. This bell, along with many others that we have seen throughout the temple, are exact replicas of the one we saw in the atrium, so we hope that they have some way of helping us move this statue to where it needs to be. We guide the statue to the bell, and sure enough, the large golden object descends and swallows up the statue. Once the bell raises again, the statue is gone, seemingly teleported out of the room by some unknown ancient technology. 
We head into the next room and sure enough, the statue is there waiting for us. We activate it with the rod and continue moving it down the spire of the temple. Along the way, we have to use its massive stone hammer to smash obstacles in our path, but honestly, it makes the tricky traversal that we had to go through to get here incredibly easy. So we make it to the room with the golden scales, and with some extremely tricky and laborious moves of other small statues around the room, we finally get the statue to the bell and moved further along into the temple. But we don't follow it immediately, instead taking the time to kill a pesky Poe that we spotted up on the balcony. We head into the room that the Poe is guarding and find the boss key, which we have to get by depressing four pressure switches simultaneously. With the boss key in hand, we finish guiding the statue to its appointed place, and just as Midna predicted, the door opens right up. We head into a passage that is completely unlike the rest of this temple. This area is decrepit, strewn with spider webs and missing large chunks of flooring. There's no marble here, no bas-reliefs, only crude stone and large assortment of traps meant to make progress in or out difficult. We're old hat at traps like this and make our way without incident to the boss door and proceed inside to see what we find on the other side. At first glance around the large room, it isn't apparent what exactly it's for, but the most prominent feature are the four colossal statues on the walls. These black monoliths all have one fist raised as if to bring it slamming down on an unseen bug, but the rest of the room is empty as far as we can see. We move further in, and as we do, we see one of the four sources of light go inexplicably dark, as if something had covered the hole in the roof that the light was coming in from. We look up to the ceiling and see the most enormous spider we have ever seen in any of our nightmares. The monster could easily envelop the general store in Ordon Village with its girth. In the center of its seemingly armored back, a large eye appears and glares at us with hungry, malevolent tent. The Twilight Arachnid, Armagoma, has been waiting for us in this place out of time, and she is hungry for fresh meat. As she scrambles along the ceiling, we track her movements from below, trying to find a weak spot to exploit. Since she's already showed the giant eye, we decide to hold onto our arrows until it peeks out again, and as soon as it's visible, we let loose with an arrow, and it strikes true. She drops to the ground, stunned, and fortunately right in front of one of the giant statues. We use the Dominion Rod and slam the absolute hell out of the giant spider. She's far too big to succumb to one squash, and she quickly climbs back up to the ceiling. This time she sheds some eggs, which spawn some spiderlings that we have to clear out of the way quickly before we can start looking for her again. We don't quite catch her in time, and we get a glimpse of her before she blasts forth a focused ray of fire out of her abdomen eye. We avoid the fiery ray of concentrated sunlight and wait for another opportunity to stun the monster. And thus we fall into the pattern of the battle. And with two more strikes from the giant statues, Armagoma falls. We sheath our blade, waiting for the mirror shard to appear. But instead, the giant eye of the spider begins to scurry away. Apparently the arachnid isn't quite yet defeated, but one more shot from the bow finishes her off, and we're able to claim our third mirror shard. While the question of how exactly Zant was able to hide the mirror shard in the past in an area protected by the Master Sword's magic isn't answered, 
We're grateful to have another piece of this puzzle in our grasp. The last piece is up in the sky, which is a whole riddle that we have to put thought to at some point. Hopefully our friends in Telma's bar can help us once more, but for now, we're glad to put this monstrous encounter behind us. We grab the heart container and make for Midna's portal, ready to head back to our own time and place and leave this ancient facade of past glory behind us. Well done, as always, Matt. That brings us, of course, to part two of the Sacred Realms Rundown, which is our takes where we talk about this section of the game and how it made us feel. And y'all, I just want to say, this is a section that is getting tougher and tougher to support at this point in Twilight Princess, just because the amount of things that we're doing between dungeons continues to to dwindle. See nothing? Yeah, uh, down to the point where it's like, yes, there is technically some stuff that we have to get up to here, but one, it's all things that we've done before, like exact copies of those things. Um, and this week, it's limited to only one location. I mean, last week, it, it was kind of a different situation, even though it didn't take all that long. You still had to go to Zora's Domain, to Kakariko Village, to the graveyard, to meet Prince Rallis, And then you had to go up Snow Peak towards the ruins and you had to do the snowboarding. So, um, you know, there was something to talk about there. I don't know. We're just kind of... I feel like we're we're getting close to an empty tank on the number of things that this game has to throw at us aside from just dungeon content. How do y'all feel about it? So I think that that's true. I th- to me, it feels like the intent by the creators was that you have passed a lot of things at this point that you may have already skipped uh, or not done because you didn't have the right items. And I think they're kind of expecting you to be like, okay, well, now I've got a break between this and the next temple. Let me go do that mini game I didn't finish. Or let me go, hey, I have this now that I didn't have before. Let me go use this to do some other exploration. At least that's what I'm getting out of it. They're, they're building in time for bloopy trails. Yeah, they're, they're building in time for the bloopies. It's just not nearly as focused and story driven as some of the other in-between sections, if that makes sense. Um, I didn't mind that it took us right from Snow Peak to this because I was on a time crunch <laughs> and needed to get here. Um, I still, I, I kind of had a, a love dislike with the um, the opening of it where you're following Skull Kid adjacent. <laughs> yeah, uh, it is Skull Kid. Okay, uh, through the forest, it it kind of felt like it was just there to slow you down. And I didn't dislike following him through. I got tired of beating his little puppets over and over and over again. But it leads you to the dungeon in a, in a manner that's fun enough. But then as soon as you get to the grove again, I feel like this section really had a, a glow up for me. For sure. So uh, my general thoughts here are, and it really comes back to something we alluded to a lot of times in the first three episodes is... This game front loads its story and character development so much that it totally robs the back half of the game of any of that. And like we're getting no big set pieces in between dungeons. We're getting no new things, no new characters, no new. And like the characters that we do get, they get no development. Like Ashe last week, we talked extensively about Ashe and how she was so underutilized. Russell this week, like 
let's do something cool with Russell. He's been our mentor the entire time we lived in Ordon Village. Let's see him do something neat, like come through the Lost Woods with us or like, I don't know, like there, there's opportunity here to do things that I feel like the developers intentionally chose not to do because they didn't want the game to be bloated. So they front loaded it and then they're at this back part where they're like, well, we can't keep adding things because then the game will be too big. So now we're just going to go dungeon hopping. And like, that's kind of sad. I I feel like we could have spaced this out a lot better to really extend the, the love for story beats large set pieces and character development. And and they just didn't. And it's kind of, it's kind of disappointing. 100% 100% Matt. I think that they would have benefited greatly from maybe extending your original cast from Ordon's rescue to this point. Um, maybe have one of the characters wandered off here to go do something or was still missing until this point and you save them here. I think my biggest disappointment is even with the rest of the little white Lotus group, you don't really know them. Like they're kind of cool character setups. Yeah. Their, their avatars look great, but then you come to Russell. And I'm really expecting more out of his section because he's kind of your father figure who taught you how to use a sword and did all these things with you. I really thought we were going to get more out of him yeah. specifically. And whenever he he's there and gives you the gold cuckoo. And, and then he says, peace out. Let yeah, me know how it goes. I, like, what? If they would have just extended that particular like cuckoo flying session by like three or four more platforms and had him be like, hey, I brought you a spare chicken, like follow me. And then maybe he does a couple of them and then gets injured or finds something he needs to take care of. At least like or, or like you you get ambushed and he's like, go on, Link, I'll hold him off. Dude, that like, would have been awesome. Yeah. If, if he would have been like, hey, I got this with like a group of like four or five Bokoblins, that would have kept his badass factor, right? Yeah. Like, I got this link, you go on and do what you need to do. Yeah. I'll, I'll make sure they don't follow you through. Yeah. Like, that something easy, that simple. Done. That sounds dope, Matt. Yeah. I'm all for it. Yeah. Glow up right there. That's that's the Sacred Realms punch up, baby. Yeah, I know. I completely agree with all of these things. And the fact that it is Russell this week that's getting the short shrift the way that Ashe and Auru already did yeah. does make it very disappointing. Um, it's just a shame, too, because I, I like I already said, the whole Lost Woods encounter that we do here is a beat for beat redo of the one that we already did. And I know that there's some slight differences given that we're human link now, but like really it's not enough to make it feel worth doing, honestly. Right. Like, well, and, and like this goes back to something we talked about early in the season as well, which is why are we repeating things so often? We we did a bunch of goat wrangling. We did way too much Goron wrangling. We did three things of sumo wrestling. We did like, like Twilight Princess seems to be a game that like relies on repetition for content and It's kind of lazy at this point. I think some of it's lazy. Some of those little mechanics it brings in, though, would have been so much fun to continue throughout. So I didn't get to talk about the sumo wrestling section. I thought sumo was freaking awesome. It It, was definitely the best like story minigame. Yeah, it's a minigame. It's fun. It takes a little bit of skill, but not like a dire amount. Have one or two more sumos as you go. Like I would have loved to have sumoed um, the Yeti. Or, uh, that would have been really fun. <laughs> you know, like maybe, maybe you gotta like earn his respect or something, and you you sumo him. That would have been awesome. And throw the iron boots back on for a hot sec. Um, just a, a couple little things could have, in my opinion, really got some more mileage. Yeah, I think this is the section of game where our opinion back when we first played it, Lyndon. I think this string of things 
not the dungeons because the dungeons are still good but like everything outside of the dungeons this is where the game starts losing a lot of its momentum and a lot of its goodwill i wish that we would have gone maybe deeper into the lost woods or into a different area of it like this all would have been even if you did the exact same thing where it's the same game you have to chase the skull kid through a bunch of rooms and you're getting assaulted by the marionette puppets and it all leads you back to the sacred grove you know all of that is fine if you just do it in a different area make it new rooms make it a new Mm -hmm. layout make it more tricky in some way um i like i know that that sounds easy to ask for i know that it costs time and effort to and a lot of development yes whole new areas and a lot of money yeah sure to like build those things but like really it's just i don't know i i feel like if you're going to redo it then you have to have a really good reason for redoing it and we didn't get that no we didn't get a good reason for reuse of, of assets here really didn't then you get to the sacred grove again and you know what i thought was so interesting i could see someone who has not had the same zelda experience as us struggling here it felt so natural to walk back up and put Mm -hmm. the sword back in oh yeah didn't even hesitate no i knew exactly what i needed to do the first time i played it because i was like yeah this the master sword is like a key to a lot of things like it's important and that's that's ocarina of time because that that is ingrained in you in Ocarina of Time is is go put the Master Sword back and something cool will happen. Yes. If you've never played Ocarina of Time, good luck. Like, I hope you find it at some point. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and you guys have mentioned it several times that there's there's things that are brought over from Ocarina. They were trying to make Ocarina 2.0. I think in some ways they did that kind of well or at least played on the nostalgia well enough for me. So for your group that was in our similar boat, probably first game or early 3d game for them is ocarina of, i mean is ocarina the first 3d game it was yeah. first yeah. 3d game so your first 3d game is ocarina and then you come back and you're getting some of those same highs or at least same mechanics kind of felt really fun for me yeah and then you enter this like beautiful section dude Man, so pretty yeah. Um, and just the way they pulled stuff off with like the light bridges and stuff. I was like, oh man, like, it's, it's, it's gorgeous for feels. sure. It was so nice because the first time I played this game, I remember going to the sacred grove the first time and being very, very taken with the similarities that it had to the temple of time layout. It was fun because it was all implied, right? And you, you get this feeling of like, this feels familiar in a way that it should, given that this game takes place later than Ocarina of Time. You know, it, this feels familiar, but time has kind of moved on from my memories and experiences with that game. This is so freaking fun because I will never like even though I know that it's happening now, I will never get tired of walking through the time gate into the restored Temple of Time and then hearing that, that soundtrack yeah, cut dude, in. Yeah, the, dude, the, the soundtrack cut in was absolutely... I sat in it for... A, as soon as I went in, I was like, oh, yes. I was alone in my apartment, so I felt okay doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I probably also had an audible sigh. <laughs> but no, it, it was so beautiful and so well done. Like someone spent some time and some real love on that part of the game. So just hats off to whoever was in that group because, man, I I felt things. You know, I wonder I wonder if I would like to imagine that their stated goal of Ocarina of Time 2.0 Ocarina of Time, but better. I would like to imagine that their stated goal of that led to this being one of the first things they thought about. And one of the first things they designed is we have to go back to the Temple of Time. It has to feel like the Temple of Time, but bigger and better 
and modern to the standards of what games can be now. I have to imagine this was one of the very first things they they tackled. And I think this is what this is the thing that capitalizes on that premise the best of anything that we've seen so far. Um, a lot of it is just in the presentation and the lead up and the building of anticipation. And then the surprise moment of actually finding yourself there. That's so great. But you're absolutely right. Like the glow up, the aesthetic glow up that the Temple of Time got here is so excellent because it really does exactly that. It shows you a place that you remember from Ocarina of Time, but it just, it gives it extra layers of magnitude and beauty that it's able to do because of the the more powerful hardware. And it's just so successful. It's, it's a faithful recreation of the Temple of Time. When you actually start breaking down a lot of the differences, you know, like when you look at pictures of them next to each other, like, sure, there's, there's more things that are different than you would initially think. Um, but it's great because what it manages to do is to feel like the Ocarina of Time, Temple of Time, even if it has quite a lot of things that are newer and updated from that version. It's a really tricky tightrope to walk. Um, and I think that they really did it beautifully. Like, it's so successful. And the the thing that puts it in that category, the thing that really seals the deal is the monk's chant. Like, without the monk's chant, this doesn't work. Like, you have to have it, and they have it, and it's amazing. And, like, the 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 audio of Zelda, this is something we talk about all the time on the show, is the music in Zelda, the audio in Zelda, is just key to the identity. It's the core identity of Zelda, is one of the core identities of Zelda. And they killed it. It's so good. No, I, I completely agree. One question I have, though, is... Ooh, so Ask me a question, Mike. Spatially, right, we have, from Ocarina of Time, yes, the castle is a little bit removed from... Oh, are, are you talking about geography and how it got over here? Yes, I'm curious. <laughs> did, so did they completely relocate Castletown at some point in the past? Because obviously we're looking at this temple as it is ancient. So my read on the situation is that where the temple is now is like what Hyrule used to be in Ocarina of Time. Like it's just that small area. What Ordon Village, Ordon Village is now the far south of Hyrule. That was probably like main Hyrule. And over the centuries, everything has kind of migrated. I mean, just like cities now, like DFW has migrated so far north that it's like indistinguishable from what it was 50 years ago, much less 200 years ago. It was all fields 200 years ago. So like my read on the situation is that this is what Hyrule used to be. And like far south Hyrule, Kokiri Forest is all just totally forest. Like Kokiri Forest has grown so much that it's totally encompassed all of southern Hyrule. And Hyrule proper has moved far north. And like it's just kind of done that. Yeah. And I, I can track with that. I mean, it's I think it's kind of one of those things where you can put your own headcanon and why this is there. Mm-hmm. I'm not upset by it. And I'm glad to see that Hyrule's not being hit by massive deforestation. It's the opposite problem. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The weird thing about this is, though, that like we've already talked about, when you look at the map of Twilight Princess, everything else is kind of where it should be roughly from Ocarina of Time. Right. Like Hyrule Castle sort of in the right place. And so is Death Mountain and Kakariko Village and like the Gruta Desert. Like it kind of is. But when you look at it, Hyrule Castle is much more online with death mountain than it was like it it definitely has moved more north like if you can basically draw a straight line from death mountain to hyrule castle in ocarina of time that was definitely a diagonal line so so i mean and look we're we're getting way too in the weeds on it but um but 
anyway, that's just kind of my read on it. So one thing that I thought was interesting is there's so many more gauges, uh, not gauges, gorges. Gorges. There you go. (laughs) Wrong word. Uh, Right now than there were in Ocarina. So I'm wondering if maybe we're supposed to think that like some tectonic shifts occurred and maybe some of the the land got jumbled up. Another possible explanation could be that some of the crazy magic used in the last eon between the games move the temple. Yeah. And maybe someone's like, you know what? I just want to teleport this whole thing away. And that crumbled it or whatever. Why not? (laughs) I'm down with it. Sure. I mean, these are all perfectly acceptable explanations and there are forums and forums and forums dedicated to discussing this topic. So um, there's never going to be a satisfactory answer. I think what it really all comes down to is that uh, the Zelda series even when it does have strictly like implied lore is still more about generalities and echoes of things than it is about explicit statements. Sure. For so, sure. Totally agree. Yeah. Um, so just overall brush thoughts, I'm going to try to summarize is like we continue, we are continuing a trend that is not positive in the short changing of everything between dungeons that was way too front loaded in the first section. And the retread of the Skull Kid hide and seek game in the exact same place doing the exact same thing that we did is not super great. And um, all of it leads to a really awesome nostalgia moment that leads into a really huge nostalgia temple. Fair? Is that a fair summarization? Fair. Yep. Cool. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. So do you want to... Jump into the end of the dungeon map. I, I think it's a good time to jump into Both the dungeon feet. map. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I don't think we really have anything else to cover here. So cool. let's go ahead and do it. This is part three, which is the dungeon map where we talk about this week's dungeon from mechanics to music and more. This week's dungeon is the Temple of Time. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and summarize this thing real quick before we get into the discussion. Uh, the Temple of Time is a highly vertical dungeon, which I had honestly kind of forgotten about. Um, the entire structure of the temple is built around a, a spire. When you look at the map, there's a main central room, and it just like that central room is present throughout all floors of the temple. They're not connected between floors, but you get the impression that this is kind of like a Tower of Pisa sort of structure. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of right? kind of leaning a little bit. Well, <laughs> it's it's straight up and down, but it's it's just very vertical. It's a it's a it's a spire that goes many floors up. Uh, it curves a little to the left. <laughs> hey. Uh, so anywho, that's that's an official part of the summary. Um, so main <laughs> mechanics in the dungeon mostly relate to uh, pressing switches to open doors, like Matt was saying earlier. There's actually a fair amount of combat that happens in this dungeon. Enemies include Lazalthos, Armos, uh, Mini Gomas, Mini Mini Gomas, um, a few poses scattered here and there. And then, of course, we have the Dark Nut as the mini boss. Oh, I love the Dark Nut. Man, he looks so freaking God, cool. He's so cool. <laughs> yeah. So the dungeon is really split into two halves. You ascend all the way to the very top. And then once you get there, you get the dungeon's main item, which is the Dominion Rod. And at that point, the task becomes to ferry the statue that is missing from its plinth back down all the way to the ground floor. Plinth! That's the word I was looking for. Oh, my God. I was literally agonizing the entire time I was writing the plot recap. What is that word? And it's, it is plinth. It's a plinth. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That like actually. Oh, that was that was great. Happy. That was a really good release for me. Thank you. <laughs> I'm happy that you could 
release in that way. Um, yes, Matt, it's a plinth. Uh, anyway, so the back half of the dungeon, so front half is going up the spire, back half is going back down with the assistance of the Dominion Rod, basically um, controlling the statue all the way back down to the ground floor. Once we get back down to the ground floor, it's into the boss chamber. The boss is Armagoma, who is a giant spider. All right, let's talk Ugh. about... Let's talk some general thoughts and feelings about this dungeon. Mike, I'm going to let you go first. Man, my general thoughts and feelings are pretty great. I wouldn't say this dungeon beats out Snow Peak or Arbiter's Grounds for me, but it had some really good highs and, and really not too many lows. So this would have been a way more svelte dungeon if I wasn't such a dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that all? <laughs> yes. So my dumb butt climbed this tower, right? Got up there. I, I beat uh, the Dark Nut and got this first statue. And then I got him to the first room. And then I just kind of forgot that I was supposed to like put him in the domes each way. And I went all the way down to the boss room. Like, why isn't this working for me? Oh, no. And I had to climb all the way back up. Well, that's whenever I ran out of speed on uh, Thursday night. Yeah, a week ago. No. no, Last uh, night, Wednesday. Yeah, last night. Oh, last night. Okay. And uh, so I... Or two nights ago, I ran out of speed on that. So it was Tuesday night. It's Wednesday. There's a Wednesday in there. Today is Thursday. What? Is, there, is today really Thursday? Today is really Thursday. So yes. yeah, Tuesday. <laughs> Days blend together when you're a detective. <laughs> Fair enough. So uh, I I then had to exit the dungeon, and I should have used the Uku, or mm -hmm. you know, whatever she is. Yeah. But I didn't. So whenever I fired the game up again, I was all the way back at the front of the dungeon. Oh, and I had no. to climb it again. Just a, a minor kind of piss off, but it was more yeah. me mad at myself. I would have really hated having to redo all of those puzzles where you have to like move the switches, move one room forward, kill all the Zolfos, move the switches, move one room forward. Like that was fine one time, but if I had to do it again, I would have been pissed. I essentially did it three times because oh, I'm done. Buddy. Yikes. But I could speed run this stuff so fast now because of my experience. Um, but yeah, it, it was, in lieu of that, a very svelte dungeon, which I kind of appreciated for mm -hmm. it, so it didn't overstay its welcome. Mm -hmm. um, but overall, I was very positive. I liked the density of enemies mixed with the puzzles. Mm -hmm. um, I already kind of saw the foreshadowing, having forgot what the boss was with all the spidey boys. Yeah, I'm like, I oh, mean, it wouldn't be a Ocarina 2.0 without a without a Goma, without a Shelob. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So I really enjoyed that. Um, I don't know if this is skipping ahead. Are we talking about mini boss yet, or should I? Let's, no, let's, no, let's wait, no, not yet. Um, so I share many of your opinions, Mike. I really like this dungeon. This is like a super close third place in dungeons for me. Like this was also, I think, the most enemy dense dungeon we've had. I, I don't really count the stall children in Arbiter's Grounds because they were just trash mobs more so than the uh, spiderlings, which actually move super erratically and are hard to kill if you're not killing them with the bow or the slingshot. Uh, by the way, this was a resurgent opportunity to use slingshot if you don't want to use arrows. Slingshot also kills the spiderlings in one shot, so I was saving my arrows a lot by slingshotting them, which was great. Um, I I really like the con the uh, 
enemy density in this dungeon. I thought it was excellent. The Armos were really cool. I thought this was a really neat uh, retread of Armos that was unique in a new way. Um, their little hammer strike that they do. Uh, ball and chain makes short work of them, by the way. So uh, oh, one man. shot, boom, ball man. and chain, Dunsky. I didn't even think about bringing out the old ball and chain. Um, yeah. I was bomb arrowing them. Bomb arrows are... I think the most useful item in this entire dungeon, because you can wipe out huge groups of spiderlings with bomb arrows, just and like three bomb arrows in that the, the one central chamber where there's like 50 of them, you just like three bomb arrows and they're, they're all dead. It's, it's really great. That's what I did, man. I, yeah. I spam bomb arrows, this whole dungeon. Bomb arrows. Great. Yeah. I also really, really, really liked this dungeon. I think that when you break it down in terms of its, its structure, I think there's a really fun simplicity to, um, the progression of things just being go to the top, then come back down. You yep. know, um, it's really fun because highly vertical Zelda dungeons are something that we get at least one of in most every game, but they're normally much more interconnected between floors. And I'm thinking Ice Palace in A Link Between Worlds, mm -hmm, and I'm thinking mm -hmm. Eagle's Tower and stuff like that, right? And those are all really, really fun, and I like them because they're so interconnected. This is kind of a different gear because you have all these different floors, right? But they're not necessarily interconnected in the same way. But you definitely – you get this kind of feeling of running through a gauntlet, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and I really liked it for that. I, I think it's a – it's just a very fun structure overall. The enemy density is definitely something that I appreciated and I thought that there were a lot of fun enemy encounters in here. It's nice because the the smattering of enemies that we get – in my head, it was kind of broken down between two camps, right? Like you've got some of the traditional bad guys who are maybe there to loot the temple, right? But then you've also got some enemies that seem like they're maybe just there to protect the temple, a la Zelda 2, you know? Yeah. Uh, the the Armos definitely fall into this category, and I think so does the Dark Nut, right? Yeah, I, I, I do as well. Uh, and to your point about Gauntlet, this is like a combo puzzle a uh, combat gauntlet like this is i think the most true expression of having strong puzzles and strong combat both in a dungeon that i can really remember like it's it's really excellent in that way um the up and down is i also think probably the prime example of um dungeon retreading that doesn't feel like dungeon retreading unless you're mike <laughs> I was going to say, unless you do it three times. Yeah, unless you're Mike. This is, this is a textbook example of good dungeon retreading because the way back down feels totally different than the way up because you're just busting through all the puzzles. You're breaking all the traps. You're breaking all the spikes. You're breaking the barric... Like, you're literally destroying barriers that are in your way with a giant stone hammer, and it's super cool and really fun. And it makes you feel so powerful, right? Because there was a moment after I got the statue and the Dominion Rod, and I was one or two rooms past that point and i was still doing the whole thing that i did on the way up right where i'm like hitting switches to move doors no, and things, break break right? them all and then i had a and then i had a thought i was like wait i busted open that first gate i wonder if that will work on like the moving stone walls as well it sure does it totally does you can just break those puppies right apart and it's it's so fun because you are very rarely able to just demolish the puzzles in a dungeon in this way. <laughs> it's really cool. This is this is great design for puzzles being fun to solve on the way up and 
even more fun to destroy on the way yeah. down. I think that was ingenious because it, it, it saves some of that retread and the little bit of retread that you do do feels fun because now you're just smashing through. Doo-doo. And then when it, yeah, do do. Oh, wow. We're all adults here. <laughs> How is this podcast E for everyone? I mean, this podcast is very technically E for everyone <laughs> yes. because Lyndon bleeps so many things. He, he's a good man. Um, I also liked going back over the spiderlings whenever you have this guy. Yeah, he just kills such swats. Area of effect, man. Boom. Area like of the, effect. The same AOE as a bomb arrow. You're just boom, dead, all of them. And uh, smashing Bemos is really fun. Even though the Bemos were already dead, I went and smashed them anyway. Oh, yeah, sure. Like, screw these Bemos. Well, and one, of, and one of them, you actually kind of have to do that because there's a switch hiding under it. Yeah, so it's, it's fun. fun. Um, I will say aesthetically, too, this entire dungeon, it's great because, one, it's an awesome continuation of the look and feel of the Temple of Time, the redone Temple of Time. I do just want to say one thing aesthetically about this dungeon real quick. It's so nice because, one, obviously it's a great thematic continuation of the the redone Temple of Time that you have to go through to get in here. But, one, I was thinking about it, and uh, it's not very often that we go into a dungeon in a Zelda game that is not dilapidated in any way, shape, or form, right? Like, this is pristine a until lot you get of, to the end. Yeah, a lot of dungeons and temples are kind of like ruins, essentially. And that's great. That fits into the legendary feel of the Zelda series. This one is really nice because this is a continuation of the of the past time zone that we find ourselves in. Right. This is a a structure that is at its height. It's it's untouched by time. It's not in ruins. It's beautiful. Um, and I, I really do enjoy that about it. It's a very gorgeous dungeon. Um, it did make me kind of wonder, I, like I had a few thoughts about like what what time period is this necessarily supposed to be in? Like how far back are we right now? Are we post-Ocarina? Are we pre-Ocarina? I don't know. But the other thing that I was kind of wondering about is, has this entire temple always been hiding uh, via a portal in the Temple of Time? And if it is, is this the Temple of Light that we never saw in Ocarina of Time? That would have been really cool to, because there was, I, I think I've heard, and this is uh, me reaching far back in my uh, memory closet and uh, digging for scraps. I heard somewhere that there was there was a Temple of Light in Ocarina of Time that got scrapped due to due to development time, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering if this is. Obviously, it's not the same dungeon, but like would be a similar vibe feel or whatever. But I do think it's fun because since we didn't get that in Ocarina of Time and in this dungeon, the light medallion symbol is everywhere, everywhere. dude. Yeah, um, I do think it's it's really fun to just imagine that. Yes, this is the Temple of Light. It's the only temple of a sage that we never saw in Ocarina of Time. And here it is. I think that that's a really, really fun idea. And that's kind of what I'm continuing with until somebody tells me that I'm wrong about it. I love it. Headcanon. Sacred Realms headcanon stamp approved. Yay. Also, man, speaking of enemies, these spiders, the mini spiderlings, hell no with that shit. Oh, God, they're disgusting. Oh, I hate them so much. So, I mean, like as an enemy, they were cool. Yeah, no, as an enemy, they're great. But like, uh, if I ever saw one of these in person, I would just like crawl out of my skin and die. Or smash them. Dude, I hate spiders. I do too, but I'd smash the shit out of them. It's as big as your torso. What would you smash it with? Hammer. You don't have a Megaton hammer, Mike. <laughs> you, you just have a regular hammer. I'd use it. 
<laughs> well, and they're gross because they look almost as much like ticks, like bloated they ticks. They do look like bloated They do ticks. like spiders. Yeah, they're disgusting. Ugh. Yeah. Um, a lot of the combat in here is so fun. I like all the varieties of Lizalfos that we get. Yes. So we've got like the... We've got the Rego dudes, right? And then we've and got. There's a couple versions of Rego dudes. You have one that's got a a, a a what's the Pokemon with a skull? Cubone. You have a you have a Cubone Lizalfos, <laughs> and you have a uh, you have the regular Lizalfos, and then you've got armored Lizalfos, like the plate armor Lizalfos. That dude is cool. They are cool, and they, they I were, like him. They were fun to fight. Um, I still like the Cubone ones that wear the skulls of their mothers. Hey, you know, you know, Mike, what the plate armor ones remind me of? What's that? A heavy armor specced Argonian in Skyrim. Oh yeah, yeah. He's he's wearing plate armor from Skyrim. Yes. I love it. Yes. I, I'm good with that. But I've been playing a lot of Skyrim recently. I, there's nothing wrong with that. I as well, you should. Um, but no, I liked that. You have to don't have to, but I liked using a bunch of the hero shade um, moves that you've got. Yeah, I feel like this is. And y'all have talked about this before. Sometimes you get all these skills and either don't use them. Or you use them like one time. Yeah. I have used the helm splitter, the back slice. Um, I really like the final draw. Yeah. Uh, mortal draw is yeah, great. Yeah, the mortal draw. Oh, dude, I've used that a couple times. I I'm, used it on a lot of the Lizalfos. So fun. Yeah. And they're like, oh, no, I'm not expecting that. Do <laughs> you know what's cool? And I don't know if either of you know this, but I discovered this in this temple. If you kill an enemy and you immediately sheath your sword, Link does the whole thing that he does when he defeats a mini boss. goes... It's, it is really cool, yes. especially after you kill an enemy with mortal draw. You're just whop, foop, foop, bomb, done. And it's like, okay, that's like basically Link teabagging an enemy. And it was <laughs> awesome. What a power move, Link. It was really cool. It's weird because I also think that's really cool. And I think it's weird that it's never been done in any Zelda game since this. Like, no, it's really it's awesome. Really <laughs> um, no, I was actually wondering while going through this dungeon what it must be like for people who have not been collecting the hero shade combat abilities. oh dude this was probably so hard because like the the plate armor lizalfos would be challenging and then once you get to the dark nut man forget about it like i was doing Ugh. i was doing roll dodges i was doing like shield bashes helm splitters like i was all out the wazoo i, I was utilizing the entire array of things that i have up until this point and if all you had were your base attacks like jump attack jab attack what like I just don't know. Uh, I mean, it's got to be possible because there's no requirement for you getting all of these abilities and stuff. So you can do them all with timing. I found that almost every enemy has a weak point in their timing for their attacks that you could get them. Mm -hmm. It would just be super frustrating and slow. Um, I did want to ask, did you guys get the last move this time no you can't get it until like the very very end so uh, you cannot get the seventh secret move until right before you go into the final fight okay and that would be the uh five point palm exploding heart technique that you <laughs> that okay. you learn that you learn from pime okay kill bill thank you <laughs> but for real though if that was in there i'd be so jazzed really cool. <laughs> um oh my gosh dude like i really <sighs> The more we talk about it, the more I'm sitting here thinking, like, do I like this dungeon okay, more than so some other ones? Look, here's here's <laughs> my thing. Here's where I'm at with this. I liked this dungeon more than Snow Peak. Oh man, I <sighs> he he's really thinking this through. I, I am really coming. having a hard time 
I'm going to have to do a lot of soul searching when we come to the dungeon ranking and the ranker recap, because the more we talk about this dungeon, the more I'm just like, yeah, everything about it was amazing. So there's a lot of amazing things here. The reason I think Snow Peak still beats me out a little bit for it is simply the characterization of uh, Yetta and Yetto. The, yeah, they're both amazing. It, I love Yetto and Yetta. Yes, they, they were awesome. I loved everything about his interactions and the the soup for his wife. Even through the end of like yeah. how you get the heart piece. You know, uh, you can still go back and get that soup, right? Like oh, if, if for you, sure. If you go to Snow Peak Ruins, you can go just fill up it's with like free in, soup. Infinite anytime. free eight heart potion. It's amazing. And I'm sure it tastes awesome. I really want to like make that soup now. Like I, I stank fish. No, you know what? <laughs> Obviously, I would use like a tilapia. It's but like it, it's weird because I saw on Pinterest today a perfect recipe for an autumn stank fish and pumpkin <laughs> soup. That is disgusting. I, you make it, I'll taste it. But seriously, like if you make a tilapia, pumpkin, and goat cheese stew, like that sounds pretty good. Maybe with the next time we do a movie. Oh, you know what I'm thinking? Oh, what are you thinking, Mike? So here in like eight years when the Zelda movie comes out. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're gonna have a watch party and we're gonna we're gonna, we're gonna make, make Yetto stew. Yeah, we gotta make Yetto stew and then we gotta try and recreate some of our favorite recipes from like Tears of the Kingdom, Breath of the Wild, and have like a potluck. Yeah, I actually totally agree. That sounds amazing. When we're in the nursing home and the Zelda movie comes out (laughs) starring Timothy Chalamet's son as Link. (laughs) We joke, but maybe. Well, no, it's made by Sony, so it's going to be Tom Holland and Zendaya's son. Whoa, what would, man, that kid's got a hella gene pool. Seriously, though. Or we just don't go that long and we have Tom Holland as Link, Zendaya's Zelda, and kind of go from there. Honestly, that's the best fan casting I've seen that's on other than anything that's on the internet. That's the best fan casting I've seen. I'd, I'd watch it. I'd totally watch it. Uh, good pro tip on the soup. But no, I mean, like, honestly, like this dungeon really, really impressed me. And it was so surprising because I did. I remembered far less of this dungeon than I did any I, of the other ones we played so far. I remembered almost nothing besides Armagoma. Like, I remember this section as being cool mostly just for the Temple of Time intro and the dungeon being kind of a good one, but, you know, nothing spectacular. And I was just all about it, man. Like, it took me the perfect amount of time. I would say I spent about an hour and a half in here. It's perfectly paced. Right. It takes a good amount of time to get up to the top, a good amount of time to get back down to the bottom with a good variety of puzzles both ways. And it just it it was it was just living in this sweet spot, um, which I really, really appreciated. Let's talk about the dark nut fight real quick, because yes, please. I, in like in terms of mini bosses, one, this is just such a spectacular mini boss and the arena is so great. I love it because this fight is really showcasing what Twilight Princess brings to the table in terms of combat refinement pre Breath of the Wild. Yeah, totally agree. And I think that that's awesome to the point where I wish that we'd been getting a little bit more of this because this, yeah. is, this is a fun sword fight with with like mechanics and timing and all kinds of stuff wrapped up in it. And it doesn't go super quick. You can't really cheese it in any way that I know of. It It's just... 
It's so it's fun. So one of the things that I talked a lot about in Skyward Sword was the sword fighting in Skyward Sword is the best that Zelda's ever done with sword fighting. I still think that that's true, but man, if this isn't a close second, like I don't know what else could be because this is really phenomenal pacing for combat with a blade with a bladed weapon and it is amazing oh yeah it, the the way it made me feel during this fight was very high fantasy yeah. like this is it was really cool this is a dungeon and dragons campaign boss oh yeah oh, he looked yeah. amazing yeah so his, his character design was on point um and one thing that i thought while fighting this this bad guy was that one of the things they've done kind of throughout the game, uh, first off in the forest temple with the gale boomerang and then with the dark hammer in snow peak where you beat them and then you, you then get the item they were using. I really wish that was a theme throughout this whole game where the mini boss uses the item of the temple against you and you have to like win it from them instead of get it from a chest because, man, can you imagine, like, if he had the Dominion Rod or even if you got his giant sword, like, there's no big Goron sword in this mm-hmm. game, but maybe you get, like, the, the dark cleaver, blade. The cleaver sword. Oh, yeah. man. How cool would that have been? You know how you could have done that? How? I'll tell you. Sacred Realms punch up. The dark nut is actually a Wizrobe who is controlling the dark nut statue from above. And after you defeat the dark nut statue, you have to defeat the Wizrobe, who's using the dominion rod, which then turns into like a, an attack rod of some kind fire oh, or something. That's a dope idea. I mean, that would have been awesome. Look, <laughs> even in simpler Rose punch up, even in simpler terms, imagine if this game had three equipable swords, the way the Ocarina of time does. Yeah, that'd be cool. And beating the dark nut just gives you this game's version of the big Goran sword. Oh, you've that'd got be fun. You've got the trade off of no shield and it's a two handed weapon and it strikes slower, but it does more damage. This game does not have a big Gorn sword equivalent, and it would have been pretty cool to get one here. Yeah, that would have been dope. Especially winning it from such a cool enemy. And then even if you only used it partially through the back half of the game, that would even be something that kind of like reinvigorates you for combat. Yeah. Which would have been really cool for me. Yeah. And and like you don't even have to use it. Like I never use the big Goron sword. I always get it, but I never use it. And just like having it and knowing how you got it would have been a really cool Really cool thing. It's currently sitting on the wall of my house in uh, in Terrytown at the moment. <laughs> yeah, uh, mine is actually also sitting at the uh, on my house in in my house on Terrytown. And uh, where's the house in Breath of the Wild? It's in Hateno. Hateno Village. Yeah. I also have it in Hateno. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think it's so fun because Dark Nuts were kind of not necessarily the trash mobs of early Zelda, but they were pretty populous. And, yeah. and the longer that the series goes on, Dark Nuts have become a much more intentionally used enemy where they pop up in kind of like big moments and yeah. they, they are kind of beefier enemies. Moblins have kind of taken over the role that Dark Nuts had in, in the early Zelda game. Um. And I really, really like that. It actually makes me sad that we did not get a version of the Dark Nut in Ocarina of Time or Majora's Mask or anything else. Well, in, in well, you have the Iron Knuckles. Yeah, you have the Iron Knuckles. But I was going to say in Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom. That would have been good. Oh, Iron, Honestly, Iron Knuckles or Dark Nuts in either of those games would have been super cool. And I mean, at the end of the day, the difference between a Dark Nut and an Iron Knuckle is, I guess, just the type of weapon they use. But yeah, that would have well, been because awesome. this fight does have pretty big iron knuckle Ocarina of Time vibes, right? Absolutely. 
Um, I mean, at no point is this Dark Nut as slow as an Iron Knuckle is pre-losing its armor. Which I know? think is to its benefit. Sure. But it, it's, a, it's a similar kind of thing. It, it's just, it's a great fight. Honestly, it's the best mini boss fight in the game. I, I think so too. And like, one of the things we talked about with the Death Sword in Arbiter's Grounds was like the sense of dread that accompanied the beginning of that fight and i think this has a huge sense of dread as well like you walk into this huge domed cathedral that looks like it's straight out of the u.s capital and like you look up and this is the giant beautifully carved dome ceiling and you look down and there's this imposing figure that's at least like 10 and a half feet tall in black plate armor and you're like Oh man, that guy is about to try to wreck my life. And uh like there is definitely a sense of like, oh my god, I'm, I'm like actually going to have to fight this guy. Holy cow. And there is a, it, it's a very different sense of dread. Like the sense of dread with the death blade was very supernatural of like I'm totally about to summon a demon and have to kill a demon. And this one is I'm about to have to fight a really big dude in really big armor with a huge sword. And both of those are cool and fun and awesome, and I love it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. After all of this, I'm going to have to just say this may be my favorite overall temple. Whoa. I like it is truly amazing. And I think that Arbiter's Grounds boss fight is better because, I mean, Dragon Skull, Undead Dragon is cool. Dragon Lich. Yeah. Ooh, like that. Um, Armagoma is whatever. We'll, we'll get there in a minute. But like, man, this the, the temple itself is is so fun. Well, let's talk about the temple's main item, which is the Dominion Rod. And this is this is an area where I really do think that the temple is down a notch or two from Arbiter's Ground and Snow Peak Ruins. And the reason for that is exclusively because the Dominion Rod has no practical use at all outside of specific puzzle solving, mostly in this dungeon, a tiny little bit for story purposes after this dungeon. Um, it's really, it's and, it's, and collection of like heart pieces and stuff. Sure. It, like, but, but the thing is you can't use it for anything else other than that. Sure. Um, and it, it's really cool in its mechanics here. I like the way that it works. It's a more fun version of the command melody from wind waker. It's doing the same more thing. Svelte. Yeah. It's doing the same thing. You don't have to use the freaking wind baton every single time you want to <laughs> use it, which is great. God, that was horrible. Honestly, you know what? This is a, this is bringing up a point that I was thinking, while I was playing this dungeon, which is that Temple of Time and the Tower of the Gods share a lot of very similar DNA. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm going to need you to expand on that because I've only played Temple of the Gods one time. So I'm going to need you to really like kind of. I mean, they're both they are both ancient Hylian structures that have been maintained and are guarded by a force of enemies that are there to defend the dungeon. They both revolve around this same mechanic where you're using an item or a song to maneuver statues between places to progress further into the dungeon. I mean, they're both vertical. They're both towers, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I just, it, even, even the soundtrack, right? Like the, the ancient, like dun dun dome, like the, the, the vibes that they have of like ancient, holy temples, is very similar. So I, I agree with you in, in, until you got to the vibes part, because I feel like the, the, the vibe of tower of the gods was more 
and this is kind of splitting hairs a little bit maybe, but like the Tower of the Gods was more like ancient uh, Mayan Mesoamerican. Yeah, but and, that's just down to game aesthetic. Sure. Okay. Like other than that. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah. I, I think a lot of those things are true. One thing that stuck out to me in this temple was the distinct lack of pews. I know there were no pews for me to crush. So I like crushing pews. You can't crush them, but also, so you build this grand, beautiful building, which at least here in the United States, I associate with old churches. Right? Yeah, for sure. So the stained glass, the reliefs. Honestly, the the best would be any of the ancient cathedrals in uh, France, Great Britain, or any of those places. Yeah, well, but, yeah. I haven't been to those places. <laughs> well, fair enough. Oh, because I'm poor. Damn it, Mike. Why haven't God you... Dang it, Mike. Come on. Why haven't you been to France? <laughs> I got two kids and I'm a cop. <laughs> so... Yeah, well... Uh, travel. You know, ACU had a study abroad program. Yeah, I had real learning to do, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I love, did love you. Love you. Let's do a little something, something. I love there you. you Touch hands. Um, okay. <laughs> so, but uh, my, my point was, is that this is a beautiful on par with Notre Dame, all those other churches I actually know about. There you go. Yeah, the absolutely. Old world. Yes, perfect. So you've got that, but it's a religious space. Yes. There's nothing in this temple that's distinctly pointing to me as a, hey, people worshiped here, which sure. I think is kind of an interesting choice. It seems like it was almost built to hold something, mm-hmm. um, which I'm not sure what that was because it yeah. clearly wasn't built to hold the, the master sword. Shard. I mean, the master sword, maybe. Um, so, so I actually, I'm, I'm going to totally agree with you. I think that the, the, the temple of time entrance that you come into, which is really the religious space, right? Where it's, it's, you've got the monks chanting and you have the chamber of the sword, which is like the Holy of Holies. Right. It, but this, section the actual temple that you progress through feels like something else that was there for a different purpose and i don't know what that purpose is it feels like it feels like when you get to the vatican and you you've already figured out most of the da vinci code and now <laughs> and now you're uh-huh. moving through like the creepy section oh tom hanks thank you yes. all the times we've been to the vatican <laughs> thank you tom hanks i've seen a lot of exorcist movies i know about the vatican <laughs> having been to the vatican this feels nothing like the vatican <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that i think was very interesting that i want y'all y'all's opinion on before we hit the boss fight so after you get your, you know, robot boy back to his pedestal. Yeah. Plinth. And plinth. Yes. And then you have entered the final hallway mm. and it goes back to being a decrepit, what I'm used to that seeing in a weird, dungeon. Right. So my headcanon for this is that whenever you open that door, you cease to be in the time shift and you are now back under the sacred grove, which is why it all looks super decrepit, like it's fast forwarded an eon, and that that space switches back to your present time before you fight Ar- Ar- Armagoma. Armagoma. So that was my kind of headcanon is that now I'm back in my time frame, way underneath the ruins of this temple via the old temple. So that, that headcanon which I don't know that there's a lot of support in game for it, but I mean, when, when is there ever support in game for something like that? 
I think that that solves my main problem with this entire story beat, which is how in the hell did Zant get a mirror shard into the Temple of Time when it is protected by the magic of the Master Sword? And that's that what, makes no sense. 100% doesn't make sense. So that was my thought, is that this temple, while in ruins, is still partially intact, and that he is almost doing like kind of, you know, they, they called it a a dark trick. What would they call it whenever uh, Ganon all of a sudden had the Triforce? A divine, a divine prank. prank. Divine prank. So dark trick, divine prank. Yeah, sure. But So he is kind of intentionally just kind of throwing shade mm-hmm. on all of our holy symbols throughout yeah. Hyrule. And he's like, you know where I should hide this? In, In the, the Temple of Time, yes. baby. So he goes to the ruined Temple of Time, uses his magic to get to the underlying chambers where Armagoma has been chilling for ages and spawning babies and puts it down there that that is headcanon that i am 100 behind rude that is headcanon that i am 100 behind because it it does like i said solve my main problem nothing else really makes sense i mean right so this anything other than that only makes sense if the temp if the mirror of twilight had been broken in like ages past and had been hidden and had been like laying for hundreds of years or more. And Midna just somehow didn't know about it. Right. But everything that we've gotten in the dialogue up until now leads us to believe that the mirror of twilight was recently broken by Zant using Ganondorf's magic. So, uh, Hey, that's a, that's a happy sound. Um, I think that that's the only way that you can really approach it. Um, we're just going to have to say that that's what it is because nothing else makes sense. Honestly. Yeah, seriously. Okay, Mike, you get 10 points for that headcanon. For Gryffindor. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Albus. <laughs> so I, I'm going to I'm gonna totally come in and uh, I'm going to give you the deus ex machina to win the house cup for no reason. Yes. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Slytherin was ahead, but you know what? But you know what? <laughs> Okay, way aside, have you guys ever played the Harry Potter drinking game? No, I really want to now. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. So, Bryn and I play it together probably every other year and have done so for a while. Yeah. And usually before we had kids. You need to to send me this, the rule list. I'm going to do it tomorrow. So, you you need it two ways. You can do like a bingo sheet of, hey, if they do these things, then you drink and you get a bingo line and win. Or you can just do it by for criteria and they include things like every time uh snape throws shade at harry potter oh dude every time ron is eating which is a lot yeah holy cow um, and then there's there's a couple other ones in there i'm having trouble remembering all of them right now but one of my favorite ones is every time they just throw like crazy points to gryffindor for no reason and so if you're not already three sheets, by the time <laughs> by the end of every movie, you're just done for. By the time you get to the last 20 minutes of every movie where Albus is like, I'm a million points to Harry Potter <laughs> because I like him and he's brave <laughs> and he had a hard childhood. Therefore, he gets all the points. And to Ron Weasley for being a friend to Harry Potter. 800 points. He, he leans over to McGonagall and he goes, hey, how many points ahead of Slytherin? Because I can't do math. And McGonagall goes, she does some quick math on her fingers. She goes, yeah, this many points. And Albus goes, this many points plus one to Gryffindor. She's not doing those points on the fly. She has calculated all year exactly how many points she needs to slide over. She, she, to has, Albus she, has, a par- she has a parchment that's pre-prepped just to slide across the table. 
Yes. Dumbledore realizes he did his math wrong. He's 10 points short. He's like, this goes to I'm giving Neville. Ten. Neville, you get 10 points. 10 <laughs> points to Neville because I saw you help load the vending machines last week. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the Slytherins who got like straight A's and everything are just like, like what, what the hell, what man? The hell? <laughs> oh my god! Oh lord! That was if that's not a digression, I don't know what. Is. That was one of the most fun digressions we've ever had on the show. I'm sorry, so and you're welcome. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm turning the pod car around. <laughs> I'm yanking the wheel. We're going the other direction. Oh, Look, fair enough. Am I wrong in saying that the Dominion Rod is the least cool and least useful overall item between the ball and chain, the spinner, and the Dominion Rod? Yes, the spinner sucks. Spinner sucks. You use the spinner other places. Like, there are puzzles in you the overworld. You also use the Dominion Rod in other places in the overworld. So, you use the spinner, like, one time in this dungeon. Does not make it a good item. And even in the dungeon where you use it, other than transversing the, the dungeon itself, combat-wise, it's really pretty subpar. They had to do some serious building of it in to make it kind of fun against Star Lord. Yeah, dude. No, the spinner is by far the worst of the Okay, all right, items. all right, all right. Okay, okay. In in my mind, they're tied. Okay. All right. Well, you you can have your opinion. Thank You're you. welcome. I appreciate that. Does anybody have anything else they want to say about this dungeon before? Actually, um, I I do have one thing. So I've been doing really good up until this point in the game about getting both heart pieces in the dungeon. There was only one in this dungeon. Was there? Okay. Where, where was the second one? I got two. Okay, so here's the thing. I only found one, and I also never found a compass. So I was assuming uh, that okay. I missed something. I found the compass. I found one heart piece. The place that I thought was the second heart piece ended up being another stamp and I almost killed myself. So wasn't one of them uh I'm, I'm trying to remember in my head where it was. I'm, I'm googling it. I I am pretty sure I got two here. If it says there's only one then I only got one. <laughs> but the thing is I was actually I was doing a pretty thorough job of like searching every chamber looking for switches or puzzles or torches or whatever and by the time I got to the boss door and I had only one heart piece and no compass, I figured I must have missed something. But I didn't have the drive to go back and search for it because at this point I'm not hurting for hearts and it's just not that big a deal outside of like from a completionist standpoint. But I'm just I'm curious where that second one was. I have bad news for everybody involved. OK, there are three pieces of art in the Temple of Time. What? I could not have possibly missed that many things in here. Two of them are only able to be accessed after you have the Dominion Rod. One of them is in the main atrium. So you have to like re-enter the Temple of Time after you complete it or exit the Temple of Time after you get the uh, uh, Dominion Rod back into where the monks are singing. So one of them is there. I, that's what I got whenever I did my whole. Oh, I got that. I got that in. one, but that's not in the. That's not in the dungeon. Oh, see, I did. I haven't gotten that one. So there's one on the fifth floor, which is the one that I did get on the fifth floor in the room with the sliding walls and yeah, the. I, yeah, I got that. Yeah, one. you got yeah. that one. Then there is also on the fifth floor in in the south. Okay, IGN says. 
in the south room of the fifth floor, relocate two of the statues onto floor switches in the south end of the room to make a chest appear. So there are two switches on the south end that you have to like put statues on to make a chest appear, which won't, I, 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 don't, I guess it doesn't appear on your map without it because I went back through my map and looked for everything and I thought I had cleared all the chests, but I guess I didn't. I'm also realizing that I missed a Poe in here. There is a Poe that's behind a gate. I did get that. I got both the Poes. I saw it on my way up and I forgot to go back for it. Yeah. So. All right, so there are three heart pieces. Okay. All right. Well, now I have to go back. Well, but no, no, no. There's two heart Sad. pieces in the dungeon. There's and one, one in, in the, the atrium. Yeah. Okay. okay cool. Enough. There you go. All right. Does anybody have anything else they want to say about the dungeon before we move on to our discussion about Armagoma? No. Let's do it. Let's go. All right. Here is what I think is actually the weakest point in the entire dungeon, which is the boss fight. Armagoma is fun enough in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with it. Like, she looks terrifying. I mean, it's a Shelob-ass-looking boss. Um, the the whole mechanic where you have to knock her down from the ceiling and then use the Dominion Rod to, like, pound her when she's on the floor with the statues that are around the room, it, it's all fun. It just... it. It, it doesn't have the substance that I've come to expect from fights like especially Star-Lord, but also Blazetta. And I really do think that that's just down to something that we mentioned about, uh, you know, one or two boss fights like Fyrus earlier in the game. Um, this boss really needed two phases and it only had one. And the, the goofy epilogue where you have to kill the eye. Doesn't yeah. Count. And you just shoot it one time. Like, yeah, that, that means nothing. Spiderception. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. I think that this boss was very underwhelming and especially in comparison to a lot of the other bosses we've had. Fyrus not included, but like Diababa was cooler than this boss fight. Blazetta and uh, Stalord. Like, I mean, and I hated Morpheal for different reasons, but like Morpheal still had more core identity than Armagoma. And like this was an area where Twilight Princess was so blatantly calling back Ocarina of Time to its detriment. You could have very easily had a totally different boss that would have been way cooler if you weren't trying to do Ocarina of Time 2.0. Yeah, so I'm not even mad about the Goma reoccurrence. I just think that they have so much potential with a giant spider. Like, yes, you have the spewing of the spiderlings, which was kind of fun. And if you got in there while they were still in their, like, egg clutches, you could smash a bunch of them before they even hatched. Um, but I I think that the second micro phase at the end with the spider eye, it was more goofy and funny in this than anything important. But if you would have had that spider be like wicked fast and shoot webs or something that froze you in in the spot, they could have turned that into a fun, cool phase really easily. They just kind of went the gimmick route, which I had a chuckle whenever I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. Yeah. yeah it, it was more of a gimmicky haha than a second phase. Sure. Yeah. I mean, is there really anything else? to say about this i mean kind of i i don't really have much else to say i yeah 
it's whatever. The only thing I would say is that this made me really consider putting a series of mechanical arms around my house. <laughs> to smoosh spiders on your behalf? control and just like smoosh things at, at will. <laughs> I thought that was a, the way to do it. If, if, you, if you have a like gentle setting, you can always like bonk your kids on the head if they do something weird. Oh, hello, Siri. <laughs> you told Siri to bonk my kids. Um, so one thing I have question-wise with this boss fight yes. is, I mean, not all not all of them makes... <laughs> Shut Siri, up, Siri. Be quiet. Um, okay. So with my headcanon of this being a current timeline boss, just at the base of this dilapidated temple, did they build this to keep her in? Did she take up residence here as a smaller spider and then grow over the eons? I'm really not sure what to think about this this process because like you said in your plot recap, it makes it hard to get in or out. Right. Was this like an intentional trap to keep a creature in? So uh, this room doesn't make a lot of sense. And basically every boss room we've been in has made sense to the boss that it uh, encases. This room doesn't make a lot of sense unless it was specifically designed to house Armagoma. And I can't think of a reason why ancient Hylians who were capable of creating uh, statues that could crush Armagoma would need, yeah, would need to do this. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. I, I don't get so that either. So the, the, the practical use of the space is questionable. I don't have anything to add to this discussion, except for an observation that I forgot to make earlier, which is that you can totally bonk yourself with the statue hammer. How many times did you bonk yourself with a hammer? Two or three times. Same. About two or three times. I also bonked myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> bonk. And it was so funny because like I knew it was gonna happen and I thought I was like out of the way and then I would then do it. You weren't out and of like, the way. No <laughs> bonk, like, oh, man. I keep bonking myself with this hammer. Stop hitting yourself. Stop but hitting yourself. Stop I, hitting yourself. I love that this giant hammer, which one hits like every other enemy, just kind of goes. <laughs> on it, it does two full hearts of damage on hero mode. Oh, on, on a it's regular like mode. Intense. On regular mode, I feel like it's like half a heart. That's so fair. it's like not that intense. And I'm like, okay, is he hitting as hard as I think he's hitting? <laughs> All right. Final thoughts on this dungeon. Matt, we can circle back around to this in the rank and recap. But for now, Arbiter's Grounds, the Snow Peak, the Temple of Time. I'm going to have to go with Temple of Time just because of how ingeniously they meld the combat gauntlet versus puzzle uh, dynamic. It's just it's truly the most incredible usage of both of those things that I've seen in a dungeon that I can remember. So for you, it's Temple of Time, Snow Peak, Arbiter's Grounds. Yeah, I think so. How about you, Mike? I am Arbiter's Grounds, Temple of Time, then Snow Peak. I am Temple of Time, Arbiter's Grounds, Snow Peak. I completely agree. Like, this dungeon blew me away. It was such a surprise. Maybe it's just because I had had it in my head that Arbiter's Grounds v. Snow Peak was the main battle for this game. And, and then the, everyone kind of forgets about Temple of Time for some yes, reason. But it was so good. It was, it was so, so good. good. It was so good. I remembered almost nothing about this dungeon. And as I was playing it, I was like, this is really great. This is awesome. <laughs> like, well, how do I not remember this dungeon at all? Highly impressive. Like, seriously. <laughs> I think, you know, honestly, as we've been playing through Twilight Princess, I, 
God knows, everyone who listened to this podcast knows that I am a huge proponent of the Breath of the Wild, Tears of the Kingdom style of Zelda games. I love those games so much. I think they're spectacular. Twilight Princess's dungeons maybe make the case most clearly for why that style of Zelda temple should be retained. Question. You're talking just about the temples. Yes. You don't think Skyward Sword made that case? Skyward Sword had a few really good ones. um, And then some that aren't quite as memorable for me. Twilight Princess is is shooting all bangers. Twilight Princess has had not a miss this entire time. Do you think Skyward Sword had a miss? Um, oh, now I've got to think about it. Uh, Skyview Temple is not my favorite. Um, let's see. While he's thinking, I'm going to say that it's difficult for me because memory-wise, I remember broad strokes of the mm-hmm. dungeons. Sure. I don't remember hating any of them in Skyward Sword. And I remember uh, like the, the water temple, um, the cistern being yeah. like a, a high point. Ancient cistern. Yeah. I remember a couple of them that I'm like, man, those were really awesome. But I can't remember if there were any low points for me. My issue with Skyward Sword's dungeons is that even the ones that were really good towards the end of the game, like Fire Temple, right? Skyward Sword had a real issue with making the dungeons too easy for you uh skyward sword had a problem with showing you the solutions to puzzles in all of its dungeons mm-hmm. and temple uh sorry not template um twilight princess it has very 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 good dungeons and it doesn't it doesn't feel like it needs to handhold you through them as much as skyward sword did like yeah. don't get me wrong Ancient Cistern is great. The Lanayru Mining Facility is great. The Sand Ship is great. You know, Skyward Sword has some really, really, really great dungeons. But like uh, Twilight Princess to me is this perfect balance of like it's puzzle oriented. It's linear, you know, but it's not it's not coddling you. It's Mm -hmm. not holding Mm -hmm. your hand through these experiences for the most part. So so to me. Yes, if we're talking about the pre-Breath of the Wild, Tears of the Kingdom convention of Zelda 3D dungeons, at this point, I don't think there's any – there There cannot be any debate about this. Twilight Princess did it best. You Oh, that is a massive statement because you're putting Twilight Princess dungeons up against Majora's Mask, Ocarina of Time, Skyward Sword, and Wind Waker dungeons. I stand by it. I'm not saying Twilight Princess is my favorite of those games. But you say they're sweet of dungeons. Yes. Wow. Uncontested best. Wow. I think I I really want to, when we come to the end of the pod in some unknown space and time, I'm going and we and we sit down and we rank our favorite games. I'm absolutely going to have to play Skyward Sword and Twilight Princess back to back to eliminate recency bias because Right now, I would agree that that Twilight Princess's suite of dungeons has a higher average than Skyward Sword's average. So I, I want to eliminate recency bias with that because we played Skyward Sword, what, like a year and a half ago at this point? Yeah. So like there's a lot of Dude, recency bias. try two years. 
seriously maybe like, two maybe two and a half yeah like we, there's a lot of time that has elapsed between the last time i played skyward sword and the and and now so like recency bias is a big deal so i i want to kind of play those two back to back because in my mind those two games have the strongest suite of dungeons of any zelda game ever and i want to know which one is better and and the only way to do that is put is put them up back to back and in a short period of time and like man the fact that twilight princess is making me do that is something i never thought twilight princess would make me do so huge props to twilight princess and also huge bash against past matt for having weird preconceptions about this game i mean next week's dungeon would have to be spectacularly terrible to ruin the average well you also have the the twilight realm and then the final but like yeah you, you yeah. have you have three opportunities to tank your average to the point that it falls below Skyward Sword, and uh, they'd have to be really bad to do that. All right. Okay, let's go ahead and move out of this section. Let's get into part four, which is Bloopy Trails, where we talk about interesting things that diverted our attention this week. Matt, I'm going to let you go first. Got not a whole lot, huh? I, I don't either. It's okay. I have nothing. Yeah, I, I have nothing. Nada. I went golden bug collecting. Um, I, oh, so good I, for you. So I have two questions here. One, do you get a appropriate reward for collecting all of the pulse, uh, all of the posols past the first twenty? Like, I, should I, I continue doing that? I have no idea. So you get a bottle for doing the 20, right? Right, but then there's 60 total. Yeah. I don't know what the 60 gives you. I ain't planning on doing that. Um, oh, 60 souls gives you infinite rupees. 200 rupees every time you talk to Gengle. Yeah, but what do you use those on? Fuel your magic armor. So infinite infinite invulnerability. It's Lyndon. essentially like, yeah, instead of using potions now, you're just doing infinite rupees instead of going back and getting the soup every every couple yeah, of Yeah, you, you just go, you max out your rupees, use your magic armor anytime you want to, and then uh, when you're out of rupees, go back and talk to the I cat. truly don't think I care that much. And no. to that point, I think I'm now done with posols. Like I've... I have freed Giovanni's cat, who was the only innocent person. He's the only one I cared about. Yes. Giovanni can like sit in his like greed infected form for the rest of eternity for all I care. Um, Golden bug collecting. I did a lot of that just because I wanted cash for the Mallow Mark quest, which I did finish out this week. Um, I have a question about the golden bugs. It's so funny because the way that this is supposed to work is that each bug and its mate are both in similar areas, right? Except the golden female snail is in the modern day sacred grove and the golden male snail is in the ancient temple of time. And I just think that's a very sad love story oh, for those that two is really snails, sad. right? Like all they want to do is find each other. They're just separated by millennia until Link saves them both and brings them together to Agatha's house. So there you go. Link is the hero of golden bugs. Um <laughs> I'm happy that we could do that for them. Um, and uh, let's see. Uh, so talking about Malomar, I did complete that quest this week. And we did talk about it. Like we talked uh, in past weeks about what you get from doing that, the ability to purchase magic armor and to actually purchase things from the shop in Castletown. That's great. 
I love the freaking like as seen on TV vibes <laughs> that Malomart has once he owns it. Like the flashing lights and the the whole vibe of this thing is hysterical. It is so funny. Yeah, I love I love Castletown Malomart. I just like to go in there and like bask in the ambiance. And I love I love that the original proprietor of the store in Castletown is wearing that stupid hat <laughs> and is still manning the the counter. I guarantee you that Mallow like bought it out and in the contract in which he wrote that dude had to like stay on and do that stupid shit for the rest <laughs> of his life because that's hilarious to me. Yes. So no, Malamar is fantastic. I bought the stamp just to help his business. That's fair. Yep. I didn't buy the stamp. Um, so by the way, the reward for Agatha bug uh, collecting is uh, when you hit half, you get the big wallet. And when you finish all of them, you get the bigger wallet, which can hold up to 2000 rupees. I feel like if I went back and saw her now, I would probably get the big wallet. I think I think I have enough. The big wallet can hold a thousand rupees. So the bigger wallet can hold two thousand. And over the course of turning in all of the bugs, she rewards you with sixteen fifty. So that's enough to expand Malomart twice. So I have the big wallet. Um, yeah, so it's a thousand. I don't foresee myself needing more than that. Unless you just want to wear the magic armor for funsies. Well, yeah, and it's cool looking, but I'm usually wearing my green stuff. It's really cool looking. Um, but I'm not going to go out of my way to find more bugs, especially trying to truck through the end of this game. Can That's you, where I'm at with it. Can you expand Malomart past just the Castletown thing? No. That's okay. it. I didn't think so. No, so you have to fund the first expansion, which is repairing the bridge. And then the second expansion is him actually buying the shop. Okay. Yeah, cool. My favorite thing is that he gave jobs to these elderly Gorons. Like, hey, brother! <laughs> <laughs> he, he's employing the Walmart greeters. <laughs> yeah, he's got greeters. And they're like, you want to take this hot spring water to my cousin's brother's sister? <laughs> yeah, brother! <laughs> like, sure. the, Gor- the Gorons are truly... They're 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 a gem. Yeah, they're a gem of a species. This, this is the most fun characterization of Gorons. Like, you know, they they the Gorons in Majora's Mask are just very sad. Yeah, because they're like all of their main people well, died. Let's be real, everyone in Majora's Mask is sad. Yeah, <laughs> everyone's very very sad. Except Angie and her husband that she unite. Well, if you reunite them, they're still sad because he's still a child. I mean, yeah, it's sad. Anyway, okay, let's go ahead and move on to part five, which is Z-targeting, where we lock on to fascinating characters or enemies that we happen to cross. Mike, I'm going to let you go first. And just a reminder that because you have not been on the season up until this point, your Z-targeting is uh, eligible to encompass anybody that you've met up, up and, to now. Up to now. okay. And I do not remember you guys talking about this character uh, in the episode with the Water Temple. Um, if you guys did, please remind me. Did you all go down to the bottom of the Zora main pond after you thought it with the lava? And freed the Goron that's in the yes. rock? Did you yes. guys talk about that? Yeah. Dang it. Sorry, bud. It's okay. I, I didn't hear that part. You can still pick him. We didn't pick him as a Z-target. You can pick that guy. Okay, I'm picking him because you go down there and you see those eyes in the rock, right? I thought it was a bad guy. And so I'm like, what is this? Is this because I forgot that the rock came from the 
volcano. Yeah. And so I'm like, is this like an ancient creature? Is this like a, an alien that came down and landed? Like, <laughs> am I, am I going to find something new? But here's my thing. Here's why I'm picking this bro. So you pop him out and he's just a Goron dude. He's like, man, yeah, I took a nap and I got shot out some lava. And oh my gosh. <laughs> and now I'm here. <laughs> but how long has he been down there? In Can a rock. he like breathe water? That that's my question. Do Gorons breathe? <laughs> if they do, what is their like sustenance? Because he, he they eat rocks, right? Yes, they so do eat he, rocks. He can munch on his rock that he's in there with, but they clearly don't need oxygen. <laughs> I don't see gills. What is happening? I'm so confused. But man, you just you did your best nap. You got here and you're good to go. And he just stays there. Even after you free him, he stays there and he talks to you and he's like, hey, thanks for freeing me from that. This place is kind of cool. It's like a cold spring instead of a hot spring. Maybe I can start a business with this. And I'm like, do you like, do you need help getting to the surface? No. Like, are or, you okay? <laughs> like, <laughs> No. So my headcanon is this guy. He, he got down there. He's living in this rock for however long you left him in there. Because I left him until Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> so he's been in there a long so he's time. He's been there a while. And he's just watching the Azoras come and go, getting his ideas about a cold spring. I think that he falls in love with one of these Zora women that's swimming around him while he's in the rock. It's fair. He stays marries a Zora woman and starts a brand new race called Goras. <laughs> and they are super crazy swimming rock folks. And I'm just so excited to see what babies look like. <laughs> I love this. This is great. Um, you, t- you spin a beautiful tale, Mike. Oh, it's awesome. Mike, this is why we have you on the show. Thank you. Among, among many other reasons, this is a big one right here. Okay, my Z targeting for the week is going to be the freaking golden cuckoo. And I was going to pick the golden cuckoo. Damn it! I wanted. I want to know what life circumstance brought Russell to meet the golden cuckoo. Do you think his sire after fairy? Like a like a fairy and a rego cucko got together, <laughs> and, and then they had a golden cucko. It's the only explanation. That I makes mean, sense. honestly, I can't think of another so one. This implies the existence of silver and bronze cuckos, but the gold cucko wouldn't know because he ain't no loser. <laughs> oh wow, nice. That was a good one. Look, all I'm saying is, I liked the golden cucko. Did you guys that we don't have him anymore? Did you guys talk to the golden cucko in wolf form? Yes. No, yes, yes. yes. you have to do it. He's amazing. He's so funny. He he slings, he, uh, slings a little rhyme. He says, uh, "It's like twinkle, twinkle, little uh, little cucko. These uh, these feathers are not for you, or something." He like he like buffs himself up and then disses you in like hardcore mode. I wonder if he's still there. I need to go I need to go try <laughs> Dude, that. It was it was great. It was okay. really good. I'm sad. I feel like I missed an opportunity there. Also, um, go talk to Epona in Wolf Form sometime. That's fun. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, good pro tip. I couldn't tell you where Epona is right now. <laughs> yeah, but you can just find a horse grass and <laughs> She's she'll She's in the appear. wilderness somewhere. I'm sorry. <laughs> stables. I mean, this game needs stables. I mean, it has horse grass. All right, cool. Uh, Matt, I'm, I'm sorry I stole your your Z targeting. I'm going to choose the Dark Nut. We solid, don't solid we don't option. often choose enemies for this section, but Dark Nut is really cool, 
And the fact that he's just chilling in the Temple of Time, protecting the Dominion Rod, and just, like, hanging out. Uh, and also, he's a big boy. I don't know. He's cool. I like him a lot. He is he is a character I would play as in Skyrim. Super solid Z-targeting. Um, Dark Nuts in general, just like... Really cool enemies. Really, really cool enemies. And they need to make their appearance back in the mainline Zelda series mm-hmm. at this point. Like, they're just so stinking Look, cool. Tears of the Kingdom brought back, brought back Gibdos. Why not Dark Nuts? Give me some Dark Nuts. Because right. then Dark Nuck, our, uh, our intrepid... Maestro, Il Maestro, would have a, a new character to uh, have as his profile pic on your, Discord. Uh, your logic is flawless, as always. Do it for Dark Nook. All right, let's get into part six, which is our final thoughts in which we let Matt wrap up this section of the game in as succinct a way as he can think to do. You know, I'm always semi-surprised by this section <laughs> when we get to it, even though it happens every week. And uh, for like, years, for years, <laughs> literally for years, every time Lyndon says that, I'm like, oh, yeah, I have to do that part. And uh, so that's how, you know, it is literally <laughs> always completely off the cuff because I never have anything prepared for it. Well, if there's anything that we've learned in the going on three years of doing this podcast, Matt, it's that you actually perform pretty well off the cuff. I mean, under pressure is one of the one of the places that I do well. Uh, so. Under pressure. That's a great song. God damn it. End this, Matt. Bring us home. Give me a second. I need sleep. <laughs> oh God, why? <sighs> we start this section of game. <laughs> <laughs> Solid start. Very succinct. <laughs> you do a great, man. You do a great. We believe in you. You better cut all of this out. I'm cutting none of this out. (laughs) You stupid. You're not helping. (laughs) I'm trying to focus here. We come to this section of game with another spelt slash non-existent between section of dungeons uh, and proceed directly into a retread of our uh, progression through the lost woods with the skull kid which while fun enough is kind of annoying but we go into the temple of time which is the most amazing nostalgia trip for any fan of ocarina of time and a grandiose and a beautiful set piece of a place and a temple that we have. We progress through a dungeon that is dense with puzzles and enemies and great uh, examples of both into a really amazing mini boss fight, uh, grab the dominion rod and progress back through the dungeon, smashing all the obstacles on our way. And as we get to the end, we encounter a less than satisfactory boss fight to wrap up an otherwise truly tremendous dungeon, uh, finishing off this section of game with our third piece of the mirror of twilight and progressing on to our final act in our secondary MacGuffin. 
Well done, as always, Matt. That brings us to the end of the Sacred Realms Rundown. Before we get into the outro, before we get into the outro of this episode, I have a question that I want to pose to both of you. Pose. All right. What is your favorite incarnation of the Temple of Time between Ocarina of Time, Twilight Princess, Breath of the Wild, and Tears of the Kingdom's Zonai version? Ooh. Mike, have you played Tears of the Kingdom at all? I have not. Lyndon, I'm going to make you go first while I collect my thoughts. So to me, it's always going to be down to uh, Breath of the Wild's incarnation of the Temple of Time. I love stumbling across it in the Great Plateau area and kind of coming up on it with the very subdued piano version of the Temple of Time theme (laughs) is great. Um, The Temple of Time and Breath of the Wild to me is the place that I always return to. It's the place that I always go to dump my uh, goddess orbs, right, to up my hearts or stamina or whatever. Um, It's where I tend to end play sessions. It just – it feels beautiful. It's the most ruined version of the Temple of Time that we ever encounter. Well, actually – it's While prob- actually maintaining the structure of the temple. Yeah, I was going to say, it's probably not more ruined than the Sacred Grove in uh, Twilight Princess. Yeah, but-, but the Sacred Grove doesn't retain the structure, so I, I, I think your point stands. Yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, to me, it's it's Breath of the Wild's Temple of Time, uh, and that's not to take anything away from any other incarnations. That That's just a special place for me in that game. Um, I, I, I'm actually going to agree with you for, for all the reasons that you said, like Ocarina of Time's Temple of Time has, has such a big nostalgia beat for me, but Breath of the Wild progresses that into my adult life. And, um, so it's really a question of like where I'm at when I'm playing the game. Right. And, um, for, for me at, at, you know, now being in my thirties is the temple of time is such an iconic centerpiece for my gaming life and, and my young life in general. We spent so much time, you and I like playing Ocarina of time and playing Majora's mask and, and like living in this world and in this space and now being able to revisit it in breath of the wild in a somber, um, in, in its somber state that it's in was that was probably one of the most emotionally impactful things in the entire game of breath of the wild, which currently stands as our number one on, on our sacred realms ranking. And, um, it's just the emotional impetus that that location has. Um, it, it's, it's greatened in breath of the wild to an extent that it has not, been in other uh, games. I love Tears of the Kingdom um, Temple of Time. I think it's really cool. It doesn't feel like my Temple of Time, right? Like it's it's the Colosseum. It's it's not the Temple of Time. It's a Colosseum that is called the Temple of Time. This incarnation in Twilight Princess is gorgeous and it's grandiose and it is nostalgic and it feels amazing, but you never get to see the outside of it. And I think that's a big part of why it doesn't cap Breath of the Wild is you never get to see it for what it is. You just experience it from the inside. And 
I think a big part of the Temple of Time and Ocarina of Time is is seeing it as you enter that saves or the load zone and you can see it. There's three graves in front of you and then you can see the temple and then you enter the temple. So like you, the lack of uh, spatial awareness, I guess, with the Temple of Time and Twilight Princess is kind of a detractor. That's a really good observation. <clears throat> so, yeah, I, I would say Breath of the Wild probably takes it for me as well. So I'm going to keep this short, but you already keyed me up, Matt. Mine is actually the Ocarina of Time. Mm, yeah. And that is not purely off the nostalgia factor, but very heavily influenced. And here's my reasoning. Zelda Ocarina of Time was one of the first games that I really remember being invested in. And I could not wait to become adult Link. Mm. We're playing this game and we're, what, eight to ten years old? Yeah. I was a kid. I was child Link. Yeah. And then you get this high fantasy of I get to become an adult in this game and have a glow up and do all these cool things and get better weapons. And I was just so excited by that that premise and that that fact that whenever you get to the Temple of Time, you go and you grab the Master Sword and all of a sudden, boom, you're an adult. And I mean, then you have the temple later, but just that act of entering, like you said, you know, you come in there, there's the three graves, you're coming in off the side of Castletown, and then you're there and you have the music and the change and your adult link. That moment in gaming is going to be hard to ever forget for me. I will say, I don't know that there's anything as formative to my early game, um, life, my early life as a gamer than the moment where you unlock the door of time. Man. And yeah, that's like, a, that is a set piece. Like, as as an eight-year-old, exact same experience, Mike. Like, w- once that door opened and I went and I grabbed the Master Sword in Ocarina of Time for the very first time, uh, it's, it's one of the most pivotal moments in my life as a person who plays video games and who is a fan of Zelda. Like, it, it, was, it was monumental. And... My ranking of Breath of the Wild as the top of the list, honestly, it like it all flows down from that moment. Like the Temple of Time is just that location. And so it's it's end point in Breath of the Wild is like the result of all of those memories built up. But I I don't have any gripe at all with your with your conclusion to this question. Like uh, the Temple of Time and Ocarina of Time holds so much feeling and so much emotion especially for kids who were our age when that game came out it's it's tough to deny so it's an impossible question but hey we we answered it nonetheless y'all this has been a very very fun episode mike it's been great having you back buddy great to be back i love you guys and of course we're going to catch up with you again in a few weeks for the rank and recap Woo! I'll get there. I promise. <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like at this point in the game, it's sort of a, a downhill journey, right? I mean, like the 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 meatiest parts of this game are are behind us at this point. So, um, anyway, and we and we've given ourselves a week long buffer in production time, right? Because we took a week off, and this is coming out next week. So, uh, yeah, so we've got some room to maneuver here, but it's going to be a very fun time and. Honestly, I will say, Mike, I don't know where you're at with this, but as we've been going through this game, my biggest thought has been I think Twilight Princess might shake things up 
a little bit more than I was initially thinking that it had the ability to do. I guess we'll see, Lyndon. Guess we will. Matt, you ready to get out of here for the week? Let's do it. You ready to have a rehearsal dinner tomorrow night and then a wedding on Saturday? I mean, we're it's going to be there whether we're ready or not, so let's do it. I'm going to eat so much lobster bisque tomorrow. <laughs> lobster bisque is great. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, Mike, I hope you have all the lobster bisque that you need to feel happy. Thank you. All right, y'all. If you enjoyed today's show and you would like a little extra Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod and become a patron. If you've got no rupees, it's not a problem. Five-star Apple podcast reviews are a great free way to support us. More reviews means that more people see our show. Makes us very happy, Hylians. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sacred Realms Pod for updates on the podcast and for behind the scenes action. Sacred Realms will be back next week with our thoughts on Twilight Princess Chapter 9, featuring the one and only Max Nichols. For the third time this season, which I think is a record. Yep. And then we've got Josh and Cody coming up right behind that. So gonna have all of our regulars. It's gonna be a good time. Maybe this next one won't be three hours. <laughs> I'm making Looking at you, Max. <laughs> I'm I'm making no promises. All right. Uh it will be what it will be. Uh in the meantime, Twilight Princess can be played in its original form on the Nintendo GameCube or the Nintendo Wii. Its HD version can be played on the Nintendo Wii U, or it can be emulated via a variety of means. However, we ask that you not do that unless you legally own the copy of the game that you're emulating. But in the meantime, may your hearts be full, may your arrows never miss. We'll catch y'all next time. Sacred Realms is an independent, listener-supported podcast, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Business operations are handled by Matt Willoughby. Our music is generously provided by Darknuck and is available to listen to on Spotify. Finally, we'd like to thank Nintendo for continuing to create such exceptional and innovative experiences. Bye!